the other the other big game in this space is uh, Jason Cordova's The Between, which right. is you know one of the one of the carved by Brindlewood uh, games. And as you know, in keeping with the fact that it's carved by Brindlewood, Jason has made the like. Uh, mystery procedural uh, Penny Dreadful show and I've made the like messy queer drama (laughs) Penny Dreadful show My audio is corrupted in this episode Luckily Luke's is not and it's fantastic and you'll hear some clipping as I fixed most of the issues in my side of the conversation but not all of them This is one of the better interviews we've had on the show, and it's worth enduring the occasional clipping on my side of the audio. Now, Luke's origin story is truly unique, and I am jealous of their introduction to gaming. We talk about how they use TTRPGs to bring history to life and teach aspects of the past seldom covered in school. They explain to me the rich history of Australian RPG culture, We talk about the two games they are crowdfunding right now. Both are horror games and both are quite unique. So hide your wallet. We delve into what gothic horror is as a genre and why it talks to so many queer people. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Jordan. I'm Allison Arth, and when I'm not busy disagreeing with Craig Shipman about his feelings on Billy Joel's songwriting capabilities, I'm listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today my guest is Luca Jordan, tabletop role-playing game designer, editor, and author. Luke makes games about history, folklore, community, and relationships. Their credits as a design consultant include one of my favorite games, Girl by Moonlight, Corico, Wander Home, another great game, and Monster Hearts 2. So I'm really happy, Luke, that so many of these people have been on my show. That makes me happy. <laughs> and in their spare time, they contemplate the anthropology of food, 80s British fantasy novels, and the educational possibilities of RPGs. Today, we will talk about two of, of their newest creations to release, Grand Guignol and Harvest. Luke, welcome to the third floor. G'day, Craig. Thank you for having me. So Luke was very kind. Uh, They're in uh, Australia, so they're a day ahead of me. But uh, we figured out like that magic hour where it's seven o'clock my time, 10 a.m. your time. Uh, So I appreciate you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We've got like 30 minutes. And it only works on a weekend, too, right? (laughs) It's very true. It's very true. Uh, So, Luke, I heard a rumor that you listened to the show, so you know what's coming. I like to always find out when you first discovered games. The way I like to phrase it is, at some point, you knew nothing about these games, right? You knew nothing about rolling dice, pulling out a pen and pretending to be somebody else. And then it was put in front of you for the first time. Can we go there? Yeah. Uh, and I can pinpoint like, I got, I got pretty exact. Okay. It was April of 2004. Oh my. Okay. Uh, and I know this because it was the autumn school holidays here in Australia. Uh, I was 10 years old and, uh, you know, like many parents, my mother who... You know, my, my mother, a single mother, kind of had, you know, shopped around, was trying to find childcare that my brother and I wouldn't despise, right? Like, this is a familiar story. Uh, and there was a uh, holiday program in our area that ran role-playing games Interesting. Uh, for uh, children and young people. Um, a work colleague of hers, I believe, had, like, sent their kid along the week before. That's the bit I'm a bit hazy about. You know, we'd have to ask my mother. 
Uh, you know, she sent us along for a day and I was like, this is the wildest shit imaginable. Oh, God. And so, you know, we went along, you know, each school holiday for a couple of days through the year. I got my first uh, copy of the uh, player's handbook uh, for Christmas that nice. year. I then continued going like... And then I never left is kind of the punchline of this joke, right? <laughs> like, I attend this uh, holiday program for increasingly long stretches of time as time goes on. Eventually, I'm too old to attend, and I volunteer there. Wow. Where I learn how to DM for the first time. Then I'm old enough to work there, and I begin to work there. And Craig... How cool is that? This is where I taught history through RPGs for a decade. No kidding. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, uh, we're gonna, I want to talk a lot about that. But before we head there, I want to go backwards in time to the beginning a little bit. So how old were you when, when mom tried to get rid of you? <laughs> I did uh, 10 or hang on a minute. Let me do the math. 2004. Yes, I would have been 10. Would have been 10. So you're you're brought here now. Is this just like a community center or it's a game store or what, what's the what's this the setting is a. Uh, how do I, I'm like, how do I, how do I pitch this? It was, uh, like a business partnership of a, uh, okay. partner, partners in life and business, um, who, uh, one half of the couple was, uh, an anthropologist, a historian, uh, kind of role player from, you know, back in like, you know, like back in your day, um, my and day, he, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he ran, you know, and he ran that side of it that I kind of ended up immersed in. And then his partner is a uh, ceramicist um, who... Really? Yeah. And like a, you know, very acclaimed kind of local visual artist who, you know, at that point, at that point had only, it was only just a couple of years back from a six month sojourn in India in like, you know, like the last province to go from having a Maharaja where they were studying like some obscure form of Indian bronze casting on a you know, scholarship from the local university or some, And so they both went off to do this and he, you know, anthropologist stood around and she, you know, like learned about bronze casting and then they came back and then she started teaching art classes and then, the, you know, out of her backyard first. And then eventually they rented the local, you know, the local school during the school holidays because, yeah. you know, both their kids went to that school and so they had connections on the board and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and so it was just like it was just like a random right. small business. <laughs> That's really interesting. So it sounds like uh, so he was the gamer uh, and, the, and gamer. the historian part of this. Now, for his part of the program, which is where you spent time, was it specifically like I'm going to teach these kids history and we're going to play games or we're going to play games and if history comes up, like I'm trying to get a sense of 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 how directive he was, if that makes sense. Not, not at first, not at first. So it, it began with, it was truly just like, let's run role-playing games as entertainment for kids in, in my day. Right. And that was like, he had a campaign, like an extended campaign in a world that he'd been running since 1982, that we were all kind of the latest generation in, uh, you know, that I can, you know, I can still deliver off, off the dome treatises on the history <laughs> and world building of this place that I haven't played in in you know a decade. Um, and then, as the years went on, the business grew, and interesting as it grew, professionalized. Because, like, to begin with, it was just the two of them. Uh, the artist's mother was like the caterer who like 
you know, fed us all incredibly delicious yep. food uh, for lunch every day. Like, it, you know, his father was the accountant. Like, it was very much in the family. And then yeah. it got to the point where they needed an office manager. It got to the point where they needed, you know, an assistant because they had an, enough kids. And as it grew and scaled up, there came a point where, and then there was like a legislative change in how childcare subsidies are calculated in Australia. Like, I'm not going to bore your listeners by getting into, but like that changed the economic, you know, realities right. of running the thing somewhat. I think for the better from memory, but like, I, you know, this was a long time ago. Um, and event, yeah, eventually we came to this idea that like instead of the model, which had been like, we're going to run a module over the course of a week that is kind of that you know that is effectively continuous like obviously not every kid you know could or you know for scheduling reasons or for financial reasons come the whole week but like that was the kind of default model and eventually we realized that in a lot of ways that cuts people out it makes it not as approachable as it could be and so it pivoted to a like every day is a much kind of shorter and more compressed slice of adventure and i think that was the point at which we were like like writing and running that many things in this one campaign setting and keeping continuity it was just like we can't do that like we're not going to do that it's a nightmare Nightmare. no one wants to do that and so instead there was this notion of like yeah what if we and this was i think probably too around the time that because i was in college at this point Sorry, college, which is to say year 11 and 12, as opposed to university, which is what you call college. Um, Yeah, so I was 17 or whatever, and I was already starting to notice in my history education this real pivot from dates and facts and figures that kind of accompany the, like, great man theory teaching of history to we would write a lot more empathetic responses and there was a lot more focus on like what might it have you know what did history feel like what are the ways in which we find commonality with you know the people who came before us what was life like a little bit closer to the ground rather than you know in rarefied Mm -hmm. circles and so i think like all of this kind of came together in a bit of a perfect storm and he like locked himself in his study for like a a weekend or something and then came out and was like, I've cracked it. I've got 10, you know, 10 historical periods I think are really cool and we'll do, you know, a series of adventures in them across the year. And then, you know. Oh my good. And that was the first kind of, you know, bundle. And then by the time we finished that year and we finished that bundle, I think we then re-ran them all the second year, just pretty much unchanged. And then we were like, okay, well, we need a fresh, you know, we need a new slate. We've got a lot of kids who are repeat attendees. And I was kind of much more involved in the shaping of that in terms of like, there were a couple of of, of bits where I put my hand up and was like, I think we should learn about so-and-so and I will write it. Um, and then eventually it slid into, there was, you know, by the end I was kind of like doing I was the lead program all right like I was writing most of the programming uh off his wow. kind of like sketches and kind of historical background yep. material and yeah and I worked there for a decade I guess and I linked and I woke up and I was like well this has been my entire this is the only job I've ever had my entire working life probably I should flesh out my resume at some point before it's too late <laughs> and I so, yeah went and got a I've got job. so I've got tons tons of questions tons of questions so Let's let's start off with um, something that I know people are wondering right now. What system did we run this in? 
To begin with, back in the week-long campaign days, it was a very heavily hacked version of uh, D&D 3.5. Initially, third edition, I think, but, like, you know, my memories of 2004 are so hazy that, sure. like, I, frankly, I couldn't tell you. Um, and then over the course of the kind of transitional period, as I'm beginning to work there as an assistant and I'm, like, 16 through maybe, like, 18... Among other things, we would do kind of like weekend retreats. Their neighbors, whose son had worked for the business, you know, it's this big community energy here. Yeah, um, owned a house on the coast, and so we got like a good rate, and so we would all go down there and kind of do programming retreats and stuff, which was lovely. And on those, among the things we would do is every Saturday night of the retreat, we would we would run like a, a role playing spectacular. Um, or we would play Arkham Horror and fail to win, even though we were up until 3 a.m. Uh, we were all very conservative Arkham Horror players, which is the thing that if you play that game, you know, like, that's not Doesn't how you work. win that game. That's how you no. fight the long, slow defeat and then go to bed sad. Uh, exactly. Eventually, we were just like, if we haven't won it in two hours, we're not going to win it. And so we're just going to forfeit at that point. And it forced us to be a lot more aggressive about it, which helped. <laughs> Uh, but, and so we, you know, we play tested. We, you know, we played some Call of Cthulhu. Definitely, we. I remember being really excited by. We played Fear Itself by Pelgrane Pass uh, Press. Oh, one of the huge fan of that system. To Trail of Cthulhu. Yeah. Um, and there was, you know, there were some other things, but like, you know, again, this is ancient history now. And based on all of that, at some point around about 2010. We go down on a retreat and we, you know, like Frankenstein in the lab, cobble together bits and bobs and we're like, yes, our own system for teaching history. And like Frankenstein, we give birth to some unholy form of life. And they've pretty much been playing that ever since. Um, and the other thing What's that it closest to? So what, what, what piece is the biggest piece? It still uses 20-sided dice. So, okay, so it's still D20. But it's got, it escapes the um, chaos plateau of the D20 by having, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have this reference point at the time, but like, if you think about the ways in which Pathfinder 2's like big modifier numbers shrink the kind of relative importance of the swingy D20, like it kind of does that yep. in a way, like... You know, it's not common, but it's not unusual to be rolling with, like, plus 30. And the difficulty chart goes all the way up to, like, Got you it. know, 50 or, like, a notional 60. Right. Um, yeah. And there was, like, some early... There's some there's some idea of, like, some fate-adjacent idea of, like, tokens you can spend to get when you really want to kind of put your foot down on, like, this is important to me that it matters right. fictionally. And then the other thing that is happening around this time is the LARP arrives, you know, the LARP element arrives. Mm. And this, you know, this began with again, right? Like we're all in uh, my boss's backyard having some kind of a planning session and he's recently acquired three, you know, foam latex swords and a shield. And so, you know, we're all starting to get the cobwebs in our heads a bit. And so we go out in the backyard and start like buffing each other. It's worth, it's worth I, I guess, also acknowledging that, like, my boss and his son, who is now kind of, like, bleeding, you know, running most of this, both of them are deep in martial arts. Um, judo, oh, mostly, okay. but also from there, and increasingly as time has gone on, historical, historical sword play and that kind of stuff. 
and I was, I would say, less heavy in the judo side and more deep on the historical swordplay time side at the time. Right. And so there came a point where we were like, well, we're all like, you know, we've been doing this recreationally, but like, wouldn't it be cool if in the middle of the adventure, you know, and like it's around lunchtime, the kids are all getting a bit, you know, fidgety. They got some, you know, some energy to burn through. What if we took them out in the yard and like actually did a sword wall, you know, for real. And we like played that out and then came back in and could kind of like resolve that overall in the, in the, in the dice play. And there was, oh God, I'm like, there's some notional connection between like, we would give them all hair bands uh, that they would wear on their wrists as their okay. health. And when you when you got injured in the live action, you would lose a hairband. And that, you know, how badly injured you'd been in the live action would then kind of like exponentially scale how bad the damage was if you failed in the dice play. And like, there were, you know, there were ways in which these things would like intersect mechanically. And at the end, you know, and like from there, we were also like, well, like there's also this whole like parlor lap side of things. And, you know, we were able to acquire some costumes and there would also be, you know, social scenes where we'd break away from the table. And all of this is, I guess, in connection to with like, there's a whole Australian, like, I hesitate to use the word indie because indie implies publishing. There's a whole like right. avant-garde mm. Australian history of role-playing because trade cons didn't make economic sense here for the first 15 years after the publication of D&D because like you know who, who who's TSR going to sell to the like 200 guys in Australia who like know what a role-playing game is and so instead those cons were very much self-directed programming and a bunch of like Antis, you know, a bunch of precedents to like Nordic LARP and Jeep form start to form in Australia in like 83, 84. And by this time, we had like connected with that community and were kind of like starting to hang out there, me probably most of all. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's so to answer your question about system, Craig, uh, we invented our own bespoke dice play system and then also we invented our own custom LARP system and then we found a way to integrate the two of them together. And that's how the children would learn about history. Yeah, well, I think what's key here and what I'm picking up, Luke, is that, you know, it's play, right? Yes, and that's ultimately 100%. what we're talking about here. And, and you know, don't get me wrong. I'm a systems guy. Uh, systems matters to me. It's a reason I explore many systems. But at some point, it's okay just to say, you know, we're going to play. Let's try this. Let, yeah. Let's try that. Now, I want to talk about the settings, though, because that's very fascinating to me as somebody who's writing the programs. And obviously, I'm sure you've got dozens, if not hundreds, that you've been a part of. But I'd be curious, looking back on it for you, are there any that have really stood out? So are there any settings that you're particularly proud of or modules or points in history that where you felt like you just were cooking with gas and you really not only say not only just really had a ton of fun, Luke, but you felt like you taught them something. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So there was a there was a key kind of countercultural politics at play with the whole, like, the whole center was very much kind of in service of a belief that children are wiser than adults often acknowledge, that creativity yep. is a really important thing. My, you know, the, 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 the artist loved to throw around that one Picasso quote, right? Like, every child's an artist. The difficulty is staying one when you grow up. Um, 
you know, and like, you know, the liberatory and the kind of like, uh, you know, progressive, you know, like ways in which art can shape culture. And for them, it really was an attempt to kind of, they, they were like, this is, we think, a way that we can kind of positively contribute to the culture of the country that we live in and, you know, the community that we live in. And so there was a bit of like countercultural history going on, right? Like Good. Yep. we were teaching Australian history, specifically like early colonial Australian history um, with a fairly skeptical attitude, I will say, towards the British Empire and administrators sure. at the time and kind of uncovering bits of it that don't often get talked about. There was a point at which uh, at one point, Australian history could have gone a very different direction in the early days. Mm. Down in Tasmania, there was like a much more... <sighs> a much more kind of egalitarian uh, attempt, right? Like the convicts were, in effect, kind of like a lot... They were free-range convicts, I guess, is the way to put it, right? <laughs> like they, 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 they lived out in the bush. They had, quote-unquote, the freedom of the bush was kind of the name of the deal. They, you know, were out in the bush. They hunted. They sold, you know, what they hunted back. They had little shanty sheds and cottages out in the bush. And they lived kind of fairly unsurveilled lives. They had to check in, like, once every three months. But even then, like, every at the end of every year, there would be a, like, general amnesty check-in where so long as you showed up to that one, they didn't really care if you'd missed the last three. Right, and this, right. And, like, you know, those a bunch of those convicts intermarried with the local indigenous people and had positive relationships with them. At some point, one of these convict bushrange guys becomes, like, one of Australia's first bushrangers and effectively becomes, like, the shadow government of Tasmania. Like... It's a whole interesting. It's a whole thing that like like no one ever talks about this in school. And then British colonial rule re-arrives in Australia in in Tasmania. They're all pushed out to the fringes because Tasmania is now valuable land and rich British people coming over want to have big estates and it all kind of falls apart. Um violently. Right? It falls apart. It is all dismantled by force. Um and and so I think, like, that that strain of kind of, like, Australian history, I think, was really, really kind of important and special. And I, th I thought that meant that meant a lot. So how, how, how did you put them into that, though? Right. So now we've got a phenomenal, interesting moment in time, a moment in history. A lot of I mean, what's an RPG without conflict? We've got conflict. We've got we've got factions at play. So how do we then pick up these these kids? Uh, and drop them in there. So what we did is we sketched out the broad, there's like a couple of key inflection points in this, uh, this kind of bushranging figure, Michael Howe, uh, is his name was. And so there's a couple of like key inflection points of kind of his life and his relationship with the British that we were like, we think these are kind of like, you know, key beats that we want to hit. And they happened within the context of broader movement in the shape of this whole freedom of the bush experiment that we think also kind of we want to hit and then having identified those we were right we were like okay so and like you know we know michael howe had his own gang but that's not really very playable both because it is too close to fixed points right can and yep, because yep. It is a group that has too much set hierarchy in it. Mm. Uh, right? Like, because, like, probably 
we don't want anyone playing Michael Howe because then that player either has a very constrained experience where they can only make very limited choices or we start getting into alternate history very quickly. And so if no one is playing Michael Howe, we typically hesitate to be like, and the GM will play you know, Gandalf, uh, and right. kind of directly steer the group. Now, did we do a series that was based on the crew of uh, Odysseus? Yes, we did. But its core conceit was that Odysseus was actually a very foolish, you know, kind of like reckless, uh, you know, hubristic figure. And it was his crew who were kind of managing him and steering him Amazing. around and kind of fixing problems around him. And so, like, there we leaned into it and it worked. But here, that wouldn't have been appropriate. And so... We basically just said to ourselves, look, there were a lot of convicts out there. Many of them were kind of like more on the bush ranging side of it than not. And so we basically just said, we're going to have them set up their own little faction of mm. bush rangers who will be adjacent to Michael Howe, who certainly was like the linchpin political figure in kind of like to the extent that the bush rangers represented like any a semi-organized kind of political entity he was the linchpin of it and so like they could be adjacent to it they could hear about him they could be recruited into bigger jobs that he and his gang were doing but they didn't have to be kind of beholden to right the very fixed arc of kind of history in that way also because yeah like we broadly speaking you know we don't we didn't want people like right on the front line of historical events because then we're getting back towards kind of great man history. Um, but it, but uh, I keep being honest here. So it sounds like what we've done here is we've said we've got a very interesting location and time. We've got conflicts that are happening. We've got factions in play. All the stuff that makes for a great role playing setting. We're going to put our player characters on the fringes so that their actions matter for them, but may not impact what I read in history later on. And you just let them play. So. Did you find, and I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Did you find that the kids had a trouble? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, you're going to play an elf. You're going to play a dwarf, right? Like that's super easy. Kid grabs onto it and go. Did they have trouble grasping any of this? Or is, am I uh, giving them obviously not enough credit that, that if you just give a, these kids any type of setting, they would grab onto it? Or, or am I making sense? I'm going to say, it. you know, it depends. I'm going to say as an sure. anthropologist who is allergic to broad strokes. Um, yep. Like, look, you know, not all kids are the same. We also had a range of ages from like seven through to 13. Not everyone got the nuance, but that was also fine. Yep. Um, but I would say, yeah, I think more of them than you think could really leap in. We certainly did a bunch of work both to both to strip the key points of the moment in history down to like what are the five or ten things that you really need to know about Roman Britain or, you know, kind of like you know, the Aztec, the Triple Alliance at the time of the Spanish conquest. Like what, you know, what are the key points where specifically, particularly the key points of difference? Um, A thing that I particularly was always like really hammering with the kids and also kind of in my own like thinking was like, like, like people have always been people. People Mm -hmm. in history have always 
Skyped off work. Kids have always, you know, old people have always complained about the young, the young people. Yep. Kids have always done graffiti at school because they couldn't focus. People have always laughed and lived and loved. Like none of this is new. Uh, we've always been people. And so focusing on, yeah, like what are the ways in which the context of these people is different from you as the kind of like thing to anchor them in? And then we would also, if there was something that was like really important, we would anchor it with like a cust- a, a single like custom mechanic that only this settings kind of adventures would have as opposed to, you know, most of the other mechanics were kind of common across them all. And so like, you know, where I'm, I'm like, what's a, what's a good example of this? Like when we did the, uh, when we did the Buccaneers of the Coast and we talked about the kind of Pirate Republic of the 1600s and Henry Morgan and all of that, right? The pirates had this really crucial idea of like mate lot and these like, very, very strong, you know, egalitarian relationships that two pirates would form. And so we said, okay, we're going to put some teeth on that to incentivize the kids to find a buddy and stick together in the way that pirates would in time. Or like, you know, at one point I did a... (laughs) And like this is the bit where like I was always off on these maverick, right? At one point I was like, what if we what if what if there was no conflict? What if we had one and there was no fighting at all? And I was like, what if I taught the children about the the Amana heresy? You know, Egypt's like short-lived experiment with monotheism. What if I did oh my like goodness. a not quite generational, but like over the span of 30 years story about Egypt's dip into and then back out of that and like what it would look like being in a temple where politically people had different opinions, like, you know, some of them would genuinely convert, some of them would, you know, kind of convert for canny and cynical reasons. Some of them would pretend yep. to convert, some of them like wouldn't, it would be ostracized. Like, what would that look like? What would it be like to be in that community? And so there, of course, the you know, there was a mechanic to track to what extent you like your genuine belief had shifted over time right vis-a-vis the polytheism versus kind of oh, belief question and we did it through like and at this point right like i'm de- i'm elbow deep in indie rpgs and so like there was like a questionnaire i think i would be like i would i would i would be i would i would be like which do you think is more important like change or change your tradition and depending on which one you answered you would either get like a a polytheism token or a like you've joined the new bad religion token or whatever yeah yeah and so that yeah that was another key way we would kind of if there was something we really wanted to hit that was how we made sure that the kids couldn't avoid at least a little bit engaging with it. At this point then, Luke, we have graduated more than a few classes through this, right? We have got kids that have gone through this that are now adults and and have gone beyond school. <laughs> I went to the 20th anniversary literally the other weekend. I'm like... Crazy. <laughs> oh boy, I'm like some, some like, uh, you know, a parent who I recognize comes up to me, he's like, blah, 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 like calls over their kid who I used to teach when they were eight. This child is now 16 years old and I'm like, a full grown ass adult. <laughs> it's so crazy. So I, I want to put you in a, in a hypothetical, um, Luke, which is you and I are walking down to go get some lunch. So someone walks up and goes, oh, my God, you're Luke. You taught me and took care of me like 
15 years ago when I was there and we played a bunch of games. What is the next thing that person would say that would really make you feel like you're, you were successful in what you have done with this? What could they say to you as a 20 year old that would make you then when you and I went to lunch, go, holy shit, Craig, I think I did something important. God, there's a bloody question. I think if I hope we had any influence on these young people, it was in encouraging them to express themselves and to do that, you know, to like find their voice, to make decisions, to speak up and to do that fearlessly and with confidence and with a kind of healthy disregard for shame and the risk of ridicule. You know, if, 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 I, if I could only have them all have taken away one thing, that would probably be it. You know, there's other things too. And it, I, and like also, like, I guess, Craig, like, this isn't purely hypothetical because a bunch of the kids, as they hit 13 and aged out of the program, much as I had done before, stuck on as volunteers and like now they all work there, right? Like, yeah. And so a bunch of them I still see every now and then when I go by, which is truly surreal. Some of them are game. Some of them design games and publish them on itch.io now. It, oh, it's that's very so strange. cool. That's, it, it's so cool. And it, you know, it's something really what we've tangentially touched on is something that I love about this hobby is with kids and even with adults, I've seen this where it taps into something where you don't have it. It gives us permission. It gives us permission to express ourselves in a way that we can't find in many ways anywhere else. Right. Um, and it makes me think about, uh, not too long ago, a couple months ago, Luke, I, um, uh, friends of my wife's who are, I've become friends, Yeah, but it was my wife's friends first. You know how that works. Right. And she's out of town. I love to camp. They're out camping and, and they're like, Hey, Craig, I know you're by yourself this weekend. Grab the dogs. Why don't you meet us out at the campsite? I'm like, shit, that sounds great. So I get out there. Uh, there are a bunch of board games, right? And I bring a bunch of board games because they know I have a bunch of board. And just for the F of it, at the last minute, I grab Fiasco and I stuff it in the box, right? I'm going, you know what? Let's see how the weekend goes and I'll know whether to bring out Fiasco or not. And I brought out Fiasco. And at first I was getting a lot of like, I, I don't, I, I, I don't understand this, right? Because they're used to like settles of Catan, right? Within an hour, I had four people leaning over the table, engaged and touching the cards as they as they, as they hit the, the notes and the relationships and objects. And then even more importantly, there was about six other people literally with popcorn watching and and and, and take that. I couldn't play. believe that I waited till the last night. Oh, it was just, it was amazing. But what it made me, my, my, my takeaway from it was, is, hey, I'm always nervous about introducing this hobby to new people. And I don't know why, because it's always been successful. And what was really neat was watching people flower at the table. People that came to the table that are very introverted, very quiet. And just by, and after an hour, we're, we're just out there, you know, just, just creating. And to, to do that with kids. And with adults, you discover that 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 is something that I think we don't talk about enough about this hobby. And I think it's also something that explains a a thing that I talk about a lot, too, which is an interesting gravity. This hobby, 
because I think of I've been involved in many a geek hobby, right? Miniature gaming, board gaming, role playing game stuff. There is no greater representation and diversity in any of the other little circles than there is in role playing. Role playing has a greater level of diversity and opinions and thoughts and voices of any of these other hobbies, and that's not a coincidence. No, I I think it very much is not. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool, right? That rules. <laughs> That's the best yeah. thing I've heard all week. So usually, Luke, what I try to suss out during the segment when I talk about your origin stories, try to figure out how you went from player to designer. But we've covered, right? Well, we really, that yeah, we watched that happen. So, guys, the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. We've got two games to talk about, Luke. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from that break, we're going to talk about Grand Guignol. We'll be right back. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS. What kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So, Luke, I got so I mean, one of the things that I love, you know, after doing 200 you know, plus interviews, I love finding something new. And, and this concept of what you're talking about, this business was very new and, 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 it, and it threw me off track. So one of the other things I like to discover is kind of the exposure journey for you as as a creator. Right. So we talk about D&D. We talk about you guys going to these retreats, hacking D&D, bringing in some LARP elements, bringing in some fate elements. But what I often hear about is that there was a game that broke your brain, right? That you thought that the hobby was one thing, and then you started discovering one or two games that made you stop and go, oh, I had no idea what was possible. Did that happen to you? Yeah, it did. It did. And in hindsight, it probably it probably happened twice. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think the thing that, you know, the, the astute listener will, will have noticed is that like of the games that I listed that we were kind of playing around with and experimenting with, I would say that those are all still fairly trad, quote unquote, games. They're all games hearkening back to, you know, look, you know, Fear, Fear Itself and Trail of Cthulhu is itself a relatively recent system, but it is very much in a design lineage with Call of Cthulhu, which is one of the... One of, you know, one of the old, the old grand grandparents of the industry. Yep. yep. And so still, my, those are still trad games. They're relatively new, but they're still trad. Yep. Yeah. And so like my first encounter with indie, uh, like RPGs and the way that we can use the term is the year is 2012, call it 2012. Um, and I go along to with all of with the guys from work right so we all go along to the local indie role playing game convention which is like 
Craig, imagine like Big Bad Con or Go Play Northwest, which I know, you know, you have had described to you. Imagine if that had been running since 1994. Oh, interesting. And like as part of a lineage, right? Like Fenno, you know, Fenno is, you know, yeah, thir- like 30 years old next year, which is baffling to think about. It spun off from uh, Necro, Necronomicon, Burbadumts, very funny, you know, nerds <laughs> at the time. Great job. Which was a, you know, which was a, like a Sydney con, like a broader New South Wales con that started in 84, 83, right? Like wow. older still. Yeah. And. You know, like the Australian freeform movement, which is our kind of like indigenous LARP tradition that then goes on to be- I'm not familiar with this. What is this? Well, yeah. So no one has, no one has heard of this. So Australian freeform is, okay, the best, the, the, the best thing I can do is kind of point to the two things that it then influences, which are Nordic LARP and like American parlor LARP. And a bunch of the pioneers of both of those had been to Australian cons in that, like, mid-80s period. And so, like, yeah, think about, like, on the one hand, like, think about a lot of, you know, like, Secrets and Powers LARPs, right? Like, that idea of, like, social a social LARP and we all kind of, like, talk and the main medium is conversation and maybe we have, you know, goals we're trying to achieve or, like, and it's a lot of social engineering. It's a lot of that. And then... Adjacent to that is, oh God, here we go. Adjacent to that is what we call quote unquote Australian systemless. I did not name it. I don't agree that it's systemless, but it was named in 1984 at a time where system meant we're playing Call of Cthulhu or Dungeons and Dragons. And it's like, okay, let me pitch you on a a classic systemless module, Craig. Uh, The year is 1985, and a man is running a game uh, at Necronomicon called What Price Liberty? Uh, This is a game where you play members of the IRA who have a a canister of anthrax. And they are on their way to let it loose in London. Will they succeed or not? Irrelevant, not the point. You are playing pre-written characters who will have their own perspectives on the nature of terrorism, the place of violence and the struggle for Irish independence, etc. Are those those compatible? No, they're really not. And the game is a series of kind of hot button chances to argue and philosophize. They go to a wake. They go to a church. You get the idea. So cool! This game has only one mechanic. Uh, Every player... (laughs) has a cap gun on the table in front of them. And at any time, they can pick up the cap gun, point it at another player, pull the trigger, and that character dies. And this game is a statement about the nature of um, terrorist revolutionary movements and the ways in which they tend to consume themselves through violence. Wow. And this game, I I must emphasize, 1985. Unbelievable. Like, so ahead of everything. Isn't that incredible? I've never heard about it. It's, it's wild. And I, I'm very lucky in that I am, I guess, okay, let, let's, let's, let's now like connect back, right? So like we go to this con, I now am the curator of games for that con every year. Like I'm the one who gets the game submissions and encourage, holds all the writers' hands through the process if they've never done it before. Yeah. 
And so I'm like, I'm now like deep in this tradition, including I'm friends with a bunch of the guys who were, you know, who were there in 1984 as it was starting, including uh, John Hughes, who was an Australian anthropologist and role player who like literally wrote the book on this stuff. Uh, if you Google, just Google Australian systemless role playing and you will find his article in like the top five results. And it's like a two part talk he gave in 93 or something uh, at one of the cons in an attempt to kind of like define and, you know, set some broad parameters around like what is systemless and what has its history been like and where might it be going. Um, but anyway, so at this con, I play Apocalypse for the first time. Uh, my friend John Macon very unusually runs a game with a system that someone else designed. Interesting. I cannot emphasize the degree to which most of the time you show up to this con and 20 people have designed a bespoke custom role-playing game experience artisanally. Uh, it will run one to 11 times over the course of the long weekend. And then like a mandala, it will float away in the wind and it will oh, it's disappear from existence. Yeah, And we do this every year. But John, ever a maverick, He's like, no, I've I've recently encountered this game called Apocalypse World, and I think it's sick. And so John somehow runs an Apocalypse World one shot one shot in two and a half hours, which I'm like very impressed by in, still to this day. Uh, I play a brainer. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, this game is so cool, right? Like Apocalypse World crashes well, my your brain. What we'll cracked it? I think part of it is just the, right, like the notion of the playbook at that time, the idea that like everything you need to play your character can fit on like w like one sheet of paper and a copy of the basic moves, it, particularly in a world where like my main background is in Dungeons and Dragons and I played a lot of spellcasters. So like, let me tell you, that was, not, that was uh, not been my experience up to that point. And so, like, mm -mm. you know, that's the, like, most, I guess, like, juvenile level of, like, I was like, whoa, this is wild. Also, the, like, the moves, the notion of moves, these, like, bundled mechanics, the ways, the, the deep kind of provocation with which the Bakers write Apocalypse World's moves yeah. to, like, push things into trouble to snowball the Seven and Nines. But, like, more than anything else, because I had been... <sighs> You know, the year is 2012. I'm 18. At this point, I have been GMing already since 2007. Mm. Now, admittedly, I was, you know, I was like a 14-year-old GMing. It's not quite, you know, like, you know. We, <laughs> we use the term loosely. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And everyone, everyone, you know, be very generous in your imagining of what my what my GMing was like as a 14-year-old. But nonetheless, right? So, like, and I have watched a lot of people GM. I have, I have assisted a lot of people to GM. And so, like, the real thing that cracked my brain open was watching John run that game and realizing and being able to see that he didn't he didn't have any any proper prep. Yeah. Like watching him play to find out and realizing that he was truly just like like rolling with the punches and like letting us drive this stolen car wherever we wanted on the highway. Yep. I was like, oh my fucking God. This is and have incredible. it work. Right. Yeah, that's and it was the, working. That's and it ruled. Exactly. And it was wild. 
And I like very quick, right? Like I very quickly from there, I spiral into, into indie games and I learn all of the stuff, you know, and, and you know, I, I go from there and eventually I start designing my own games. You know. So you said there was a second moment. Yeah. The second, the second one is the kind of like the other, you know, is the, the Fenno half of the occasion of, of the thing, okay. right? Where like, it isn't one game. It's, you know, the very first session of the con, I play a vampire game called Willow Bark, where we're a bunch of ghouls whose masters have just died. Um, do we use any of the mechanics of vampire? No, we don't. Instead, there is a big tub in the middle of the table. Not a tub, like a, uh, like a moonshine bottle. Um, yep. And each of us has a beer bottle filled with uh, red food-colored water, which is the amount of Vitae left in our bodies. And anytime we want to do vampire stuff, we have to pour a shot out. Oh, and once it runs out, like, that's it. Time's catching up with us. We're done. I'm yeah. like, you know, it's that. It's me hearing about what price liberty from John Hughes at, you know, 1 a.m. at the Bahub after at Postcon Drinks the first time. It's my friend Melody running Red Sisters Black Skies, uh, <laughs> a LARP based on uh, Night Witches by Jason Morningstar. Yeah. And 40 of us like sobbing at the back of the room at the thought of like the fact that these women like kept marching at like victory parades and then over the generations either stopped coming or like could not come anymore. Like the idea of the weight of that idea. It's my friend Cole running carrier tidies, a like scathing indictment of the misogyny of the Iliad <laughs> that is all about the women of Troy, like right before the Trojan, but like right oh before my it falls, that begins with the these five women gathered around a prop stand-in for Hector's body, preparing it for burial in like semi-larp fashion. Like it is a string of truly wild games yeah. I have both played and heard about in the local Australian game scene. Um so you're painting quite a picture here, Luke, and you're you're painting this picture deliberately or not is is very Australian, right? So we're talking yeah. about the systemless. We're talking about this culture, and I guess what I want to hear or understand is this just a situation where this all happened because you were all together and you had this long, you know, community history. I mean, talk about some of these cons going back to '84. So this just happened because it happened here. Or in your mind, as as an anthropologist and as somebody who is not Australian by birth, who came into it, is there something distinctly Australian happening here with 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 this with this style of play? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, so I am Australian by birth. Um, oh, you are. Let, I'm sorry. Yeah, don't let don't let the accent fool you. Um, I've got. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll be I've, here if you need me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got. I've got one of those. those Do your fancy, research, asshole. <laughs> I've got one of those. Fan, I've got one of those fancy Australian accents a, that make me sound like I'm from the oh UK. Oh my god, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> no, host. It's perfectly. It's perfectly right. It's perfectly right. Be, being French. How do you look at this? <laughs> I apologize. But you understood the, 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 the yeah, question, no, right? The Is there question. something distinctly Australian happening? <laughs> I'm such a dope. <laughs> my, my instinct is always to avoid, like, like my, you know, my academic instinct is always to avoid profession, uh, exceptionalizing. Like, sure. Instinct says to me, I don't think much of this is quote unquote, like uniquely, you know, I don't think it's like 
Metaphysically, cultural. metaphysically right. I don't think there's anything uniquely Australian Fair. happening here. I think dialectically, a bunch of the cultural attitudes in Australia, a bunch of the material conditions around how role-playing emerges in Australia kind of like shape a thing that would not have happened that way elsewhere because those other places would have had different inputs. Help me um, understand that a little bit. Yeah. So I, like, I don't think it was destined to be this way. I think it sure. happened to turn out this way because of a set of inputs. And I think in a different place, the inputs would necessarily be different. And so you might get a similar thing or an adjacent thing, but I don't think you would get the same thing. Completely like get what you're not, saying. So let's 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 yeah, talk like the inputs. That's not metaphysical then. in any sense. Understood. Understood. Yeah. yeah. No. No. I get that. And, I, and that really was. You're you're getting closer to what my question really was, which is good. What, what do you think those inputs were? Yeah, right. So yeah, what yeah. what what were the ingredients to this stew? What are the ingredients to this stew? I think one, uh, like as I kind of foreshadowed, right? The trade cons don't come to Australia until quite late. Yep. Um, Australia is Australia is like okay. We like to think we are a very anti-authoritarian culture. In practice, we're actually often deeply kind of like uh, you know kind of like stick in the mud, and we don't like it when anyone rocks, yep. rocks the boat. But like we we self mythologize as being a nation of kind of like larrikin you know kind of like free-spirited you know people and i think that probably contributes to everyone's eagerness to be like yeah fuck the rules um Mm -hmm. i think the time it happens it right like i think i think if it had cons start in the u.s and also i i I might gather into a lesser extent in the uk quite soon to the start of uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Very much so. Whereas like, whereas like Dungeons and Dragons is published, allow time for it even to make its way to Australia and for there to be enough density of a fan base for anyone to, right? Like by the time we're starting to like get a con culture going, Call of Cthulhu is already beginning to exist. And my friend John has this theory and I think it is a naive theory. Sorry, John. But I think it is not a theory without without truth, where he talks about this kind of like distinct arc of like when you look at the history of role-playing games, we begin with the hero, like very, very uncomplicated hero fantasies around being strong and exerting, you know, power on the world and very kind of masculine fantasies. Yep. And then the next moment in that arc with Predominantly, he kind of points to Call of Cthulhu, but I would also say, like, Bunnies and Burrows is this thing also, right? Like, there's a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of other games in this turn that you might not think of, but then you're like, hang on a minute. Like, next comes the victim fantasy, right? And the idea that there are ways in which kind of understanding what it might like to be less powerful, what it might feel like to be less, you know, less strong. Helpless. That becomes an interesting, helpless to kind of explore our emotions and like John characterizes mm-hmm. this as a more feminine, you know, like fantasy. Again, I think that's, I, you know, I think there's some reductiveness there, but I also think, yeah, yeah. I think you can't deny understand that, he's, what he's saying. Yeah. I think yeah. you can't deny that like historically, probably there's some extent to which like, you know, if you plotted on a map, the like rise in the number of women in the hobby and the moment where call of Cthulhu shows up, you know, not to say that there is a, 
causal relationship between either of those things. But like, I think among the conditions for Call of Cthulhu to arise is there are people in the hobby interested in doing things that aren't just like bash bash monster open chest and not exactly. to stereotype. But I think, you know, I think many of those people were women. <laughs> there's no question and again i guess it's a diversity thing that we're talking about right we we see we see the hobby change over time yeah and like and so i think yeah like i I think there's something to the fact that like right like i I keep pointing at like 1982 83 84 85 as the point at which this culture really starts to emerge in australia and that's round about if i recall the time when you know, Call of Cthulhu is starting to become big and these more, both people are more open to theatrical styles of play. Like, I don't think of the use of props as a characteristic of early Dungeons and Dragons culture. I do think of, ooh, I pre-prepared like the newspaper article in the Arkham Herald or like, ooh, here's the dagger as like a classic, like early Call of Cthulhu game masters, like trick. Call of Cthulhu also invites a lot of like memory slippage, time travel, like a lot of these very narrative and literary devices that once you figure out that they're fun and cool and you can do interesting things with them, there comes a point where you're just like, and what if we just like left the rest of Call of Cthulhu behind and we just did the flashback thing or whatever, you know, there's like, there's there's like one of the early systemless, you know, games that's really crucial is like a Call of Cthulhu game about a group of amnesiacs kind of recovering their memories and like I, the memories are all written down on scraps of paper and they're all deliberately written to not perfectly match and they're not like in any order and you kind of had to assemble it yourselves or something. There's yeah. another one with like a past life regression tape. Part of it is also just like stuff's happened in the 80s that's a bit weird. Um, and yeah, I think all of that feeds into it, basically. So I'm going to throw, throw an idea at you and you can say, Luke, you're full of shit. Uh, or you say, Craig, you're full of shit. Um, something we forget about in our day and time and, and where we are right now is the free flow of information, right? We live in a time now where information is unfettered, sometimes to the detriment of, of society. But it wasn't that long ago, not to be the old guy, wasn't that long ago where it was. And, and in many ways, Australia was very isolated geographically. As a result, you know, games came late, information came late. Uh, the import export restrictions made it tough uh, for a lot of the shipping Western shipping. Right, exactly. It's right. So very it, expensive. So I, I wonder, do you think the fact that you were left to your own devices and untainted is a part of that? 100%. Yeah, 100%. And also, I feel like... Okay, so, like, there's a melancholy and a sadness with which I talk about all of this. Yeah. Because Fano is the last of these cons left. Why is that? What what happened? It's been, like, 40 years is a long time, right? Like, yeah. they folded, you know, organizers got burned out, scandals happened variously. Um, ArcanaCon... ArcanaCon is also still around, kind of, which is, like, the Melbourne version of necro Mm -hmm. it's older than fenno but like it was very much a case there of 
in its original form, it kept going, and then the orgs couldn't keep it going anymore, and then the rights to the name were sold, and another group picked them up. And, like, none of this is to devalue... Like, those people have done valiant efforts. Like, I I am personally friends with some of the people behind that organization. Like, they're wonderful people. They run a great con. But they run a con that is... This, it is no longer the thing that we are talking about. Um, and it is much more now, not quite a trade con, but it's much more of a big bad con or a go play Northwest where people show up with like, you know, get like capital G games that are recognized entities and people sign up to play Bluebeard's Bride or whatever. Panels and yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, there might be panels. I don't know about panels. Yeah, anyway. And so like, yeah, there is a sadness here in that, like, we are the, you know, we're, we're the last, you know, we're the last ones left holding the torch. And, like, yeah. like I'm, I'm going to level to you, Craig, right? Like, COVID nearly killed us. I bet. Like, we, we, we nearly ran and then canceled a month out Fano twice during COVID in 2020 and 21. 2022 limped over the line. This year, we were back. I think, I think from here we're good. But, like... Fenno has not survived because it is unique. Fenno has survived because it is lucky. I, like, I must emphasize, right? And part of the problem here is, as you say, like, Australia is a very isolated place. Australia is also a very big place. It's, uh, that blows my mind. The more it's I learn... It's a very big place. It's, it's fucking huge. And the vast majority of it is unpopular. Yes, that is also true. Yeah, and so, like, what you have, what you have is... Now... Western Australia truly like nominally it's part of the same country it might as well be a different country I've never been to Western Australia I don't know that I've met anyone from Western Australia like what does the role playing scene in Western Australia look like did Perth have a version of this I don't know I truly have no idea what I know is there was a con in the style of Necro and uh, Ark up in Brisbane in Queensland kind of you know, an, a 10 to 11 hour drive up the coast. I know there was Ark, an eight or nine or 10 hour drive down the coast from here in Melbourne. And then I know there was Necro, which then sort of turned into Fenno. And I would like bet good money that each of those cons within this broader trend had a very distinct regional focus and style and vocabulary. And, and culture. Yeah, no and culture. Yep. And yep. I, the impression I get from, you know, the, the grognards who I know, and I say that lovingly from these early days, is that, like, oh, like these cons started, like, not a lot of these cons survived to, like, 2005 even. Yeah. At which point, like, you know, the information age, like, truly, really arrives. And so, like, there's a whole world of, like, what were they doing up in Brisbane that might have been, like, deeply different from what we're doing? Like, I don't know. I, no one knows. Yes, some of us went up, you know, some, you know, 10%, 5% of Fenno's membership took the took the trip every year. And, like, some of those ideas filtered back through osmosis. But, like, can I speak comprehensively to what they were doing? Absolutely. Like, no. And also, the other kind of tragic most part of this, right, is there's no, other than John's essay, which I must emphasize, is from 1993, right? Like, this is an old, old essay. Other than that essay, 
there's very little written about this. Like where, you know, Emily Kerr Boss's like history of LARP on her website, I think like mentions us in passing. You know, there was like a book about Australian freeform that like was small press, like self-published in like 86. But like, you know, we don't have much of a footprint tangibly. And like most of these folks are like, you know, they're like older folks. They play within this local community. They're not on TTRPG Twitter. Most of them, if you showed them, you know, like a published indie game like Apocalypse World, they'd be suspicious of it. Yeah. In the same way that they were suspicious of Call of Cthulhu when they all decided to do their own thing. And so like, there's even a sorrow in the fact that like, I'm the one talking about this. Like I wasn't, the year that John gave that essay, like delivered that keynote address that became the essay, I wasn't born yet. And this I, is, and all this I'm is incredible the, to me. The only person really, as far as I right. can tell, who is kind of like uniquely positioned at this juncture of, you know, of kind of like communities to like be able to like speak up and say, hey, we, we actually we were we were here at some point. <laughs> So here's what's fascinating to me, Lucas, and by no means am I an epicenter of anything, but I've talked to a lot of, right? But the fact that I have spent an hour now drilling into your brain to try to learn about something that I've heard nothing about up to this point, I think is significant considering the number of people that I've had two and three hour conversations with. Like, like the first thing that pops into my mind is we need to start a Kickstarter to have Shannon Applecline extracted out of the u.s dropped into australia for two years to document all this right like before it's gone because it's it's super super interesting and and it ties into a lot of what we've talked about now i'm gonna have to be that guy here which is a i i want to learn more about this um so i'm gonna hold you to a future episode where i want to dive into this more talk about it later (laughs) yep but but we've got to talk about your game. So we are going to take another break. We're 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 going to talk about your games. But but Luke, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate learning this piece of this thing because the whole purpose and the reason this podcast exists is me trying to learn how this hobby came to be where it is today. And this is a slice of it I knew nothing about. So I appreciate that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitchman explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway. Enjoy this episode knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. 
All right. So I told you that the last segment was going to be about uh, Grand Guignol, but this next segment is actually going to be about the game. So I'm going to I'm going to read the blurb. Now, the only thing sillier than designing a game is then kickstarting a game. So that's all of that is pure self abuse. Right. And then the only other thing that's even dumber than that, Lucas, then to crowdfund two games at the same time which is what you're doing right now as we're talking let's talk about the first one we'll talk about the second one in a moment i want to read a little segment about this and and for those of you that listen you know i like to read the kind of like the the promotional blurb this is a little bit longer than usually what i read and i think it's all important so listen up grand guignol gives us crooked alleys foggy squares charged touches and words left unsaid, lavish parties and faceless crowds, bloody hands and dangerous smiles, and always the darkness without and within, asking what lurks in the secret corners of your heart. In Grand Guignol, we play as citizens of London, and all its sprawling Victorian glory amongst it, all we monsters and queers hold each other close, slay our demons and live our lives. We flirt and feud, tremble and embrace and hurt and heal one another as we cling together in the margins of this hostile world. Inspired by the queer reads of Victorian Gothic, Grand Guignol delves deep into our, the heart and soul of the period, weaving an environment both intimate and terrifying, built on the belonging outside of belonging system invented by Avery Elder and Benjamin Rosenbaum. Grand Guignol presents us with a cast of tragic antiheroes. Now, I have edited that down and it was not easy for me to do. This is a very grand thing. And I will say one thing I will tell you is I was, I was reading this for the first time. I said, I bet you. I bet you this is outside belonging system. Like I like I smelled it a mile away. So let's go through where this comes from. So. The question I always ask this at some point never existed in your head. It was never an itch in the back of your head. But at some point, it started asking for you to look at it, started saying, you need to think about this a little bit more. So if we go back to the acorn version of the oak, where was the first acorn and when did it fall? I'm going to arbitrarily pick an acorn. Because like, you know, truly in the most expansive version of this, right, like I read Dracula for the first time, age 13. Technically speaking, is probably like the first domino. But like... I read Dracula. I thought it was pretty cool. There was a vampire. Like that's that's all. That's that's that acorn. Like that's that's all there is. Um, you know, the first meaningful acorn <laughs> of significance is uh, a show called Penny Dreadful. Yeah, great show. Eva Green is there. Timothy Dalton is there. It fucking rules. Um, and so I, you know, I watch I watch Penny Dreadful. Right is is like the first acorn. And two things about that show really grab me. One of them is um, because at that time I'm relatively kind of like new to realizing I'm I'm queer, and mm -hmm. so like the ways in which uh, some of the storylines in that first season show us show us queerness and show us queerness in unexpected places yep uh for the victorian period like i was like what that's really cool <laughs> it's always been here <laughs> it's always been here and also <laughs> um the uh, and like particularly too like and then i and i engage a little bit with like the kind of fan communities around this show 
where particularly on Tumblr, there is a lot of like directly drawing the lines between the ways in which which the show is depicting queerness in the period and the like real historical material, you know, events that like inspired that and the fact that yes, queer people like really actually have always been here. And so like, you know, that, that hits me. And then also... By this point, I'm already kind of like a tragic of the late gothic, right? Like, I, you know, I've, like I've, read, I've read a bunch of this shit. And so just like the ways in which it plays around with putting Frankenstein and Dracula and the portrait of Dorian Gray in conversation with one another and the choices it makes about how to do that. I'm like, I'm like, there are some really like interesting choices being made here as opposed to and like not to... You know, not not to be derogatory, but like a lot of people love to put Dracula and Sherlock Holmes in conversation with each other. Right. And not always in ways that are like in ways that are fun, but not necessarily, like you know, they don't really necessarily have like a huge amount to say. Whereas like yep. John Logan clearly had some shit he wanted to say. I think particularly about there's like Caliban, the like uh, Frankenstein's monster, like makes a speech in like the third episode about like. You know, did you did you did you really think that we would be the children of like Wordsworth, right? Like, kind of connecting the shift in the poetic movements of London at the time to the themes of modernity and Frankenstein. And I'm like, yep. this is a man who did the assigned reading and was paying attention. And so that happens. I mean, and like, and like, then nothing happens for like two years, right? Like, and I, sure. I'm like, that was a cool show that happened. And I wonder off, you know, eventually the third season comes out. I thought the third season was fine, but I thought it was a lot less interesting than the first two seasons. That's my take. Um, and, you know, and so then I kind of like forget about Penny Dreadful for a bit. And then, like, I could not even tell you, like, I rewatch Penny Dreadful maybe. Like, I can't tell you what brought it back up into you know, the act of consciousness from the back corners of my brain. But all of a sudden, I start thinking about Penny Dreadful again. hmm And make suddenly a connection that at the time, for whatever reason, I didn't make. And part of this, I think, is probably because, you know, Penny Dreadful comes out in 24 to 2014, Am I right about that? I'm pretty sure. Something around there, yeah. And yeah. I'm still in the middle of my uh, undergraduate uh, degree at the time. And when you know, when I remember it, I'm now done with my undergraduate degree. Right. And a yep. thing that I, and this I guess is the other half of it, a thing that I kept doing in my undergraduate degree by accident is taking English courses where I was assigned texts about the Gothic where among the you know essay prompts were prompts about queer reads of the gothic which i as a person you know kind of fairly new in my queerness and kind of still exploring it and thinking through it was like ooh, that's interesting that could be fun and so i probably wrote a course's worth of essays about the queer gothic across five different courses by accident I want to stop here for just a second, Luke, because this is interesting to me because I've noticed this about that genre, right? Mm. The Victorian Gothic genre and it's tied to queerness is this is something that that is well documented and it's used a lot. Can you give me a sense uh, as cis white cis white dude here in the U.S.? Why? Because it makes sense to me, right? When I come across it, I'm like, oh, right, of course, of course. But 
but I'm not queer. So I don't, I'm not looking at it through those yeah. lenses. What do you think is so unique about that genre and setting that lends itself to tell queer story? I think there are three answers here. Uh, and I think one of them is a very straightforward answer, which is like, if we look at the canon of late Gothic and like, I do like to specify late Gothic or Victorian Gothic because like, you know, the Gothic stretches all the way back to the late 1700s and, you know, I'm not pulling on the, you know, the mystery of Adolfo or the monk, right? Like those are a much earlier strand of the Gothic that the game doesn't really engage with. But like, yeah, if we look at the late Gothic um, and also kind of like reach slightly outside of that period and just steal Frankenstein, um, just because it's mm-hmm. fun. Um, like one, a lot of it is... A lot of it is textually about queerness, um, or at the very least, we can make a we can make an educated way. Like the portrait of Dorian Gray is a work written by England's most notorious homosexual at the time, where Dorian's sin is unspeakable vices, which in the period we know was a euphemism for. Uh, he he was gay, and the the vice was kissing boys, uh, which is why every time they make a film adaptation, and it's like, it's kind of like the you know the the lame attempt at BDSM that you're allowed to put in like an M rated movie, and like you know Ben Barnes is like pouring some wine on a lady's like uh, cleavage, and then like kissing her shoulder. I'm like, no, no, that's when it talked about unspeakable debauchery in the book. Like that's that's <laughs> it 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 meant he fucked dudes. That's what they meant. <laughs> I cannot possibly be clearer with you. You know, and so, and so, you know, and so, you know, Carmilla textually is about, a, you know, a, a vampiress engaged in a inappropriate quote unquote relationship with a woman. Yep. The portrait of Dorian Gray is about a queer man who is doing that unacceptably. And also, crucially, this doesn't get talked about much. Bram Stoker was queer. I did not know that. Interesting. Oh my god. He gosh, wrote very embarrassing letters to Walt Whitman because he was a huge fan. Get out. How did I not know this? Oh, that's fascinating. And so, like, you know, it, it, one, you know, like the the Gothic has always literally been queer. There have right. been foundational texts in it that have always been queer. At the most uh kind of like flippant level, uh the fundamental theme of the Gothic if we have to be really reductive and like yeah. boil it down, Gothic literature is all about repression. Yes. And uh, skeletons in the closet or ghosts in the past re-erupting into the present in ways that are impossible to ignore. And uh, to queer people, that is a very potent metaphor. Right, right. Because that's often how queerness is in, in our lives, right? Like you... You know, you tr- you try not to think about the ways in which you are different, and eventually, you know, but that you they can't be ignored forever. But it, it refuses to not emerge. Right? Yeah, and then the like the broadest answer I would give is the Gothic is very fruitful ground for thinking about queerness because a lot of ang- a lot of monstrosity in the Gothic has its roots in anxiety about gender. Ooh, that's super interesting. Talk to me and about that. That's about, and like I want to be clear, that's not the like that's not the only side of monstrosity in the Gothic, right? There are, you know, you can make class reads of the Gothic, you can make race reads of the Gothic, you know, and this game kind of doesn't go 
wholly into those things because I'm not qualified necessarily to talk about them. But, you know, there is a sense in which, like, if we start, even like Frankenstein, right? Like, fundamentally, like, why is Frankenstein horrifying? And one answer to that question is Frankenstein is a story about creating, begetting offspring outside of reproduction in defiance of God's, God's will and God's plan. You know, like, yep. if, you know, there are, there are plenty, there are, there are many reads of Dracula that look at the ways in which Dracula very much in the way that it talks about women is about the whore Madonna complex, right? There are two kinds of women in Dracula. There are weak, weak fallen women, including uh, Lucy, who, you know, like, Rip to Lucy, she was a real one. Uh, you know, she didn't deserve what she got. And also everyone should stop being so mean about her. But, you know, <laughs> there, there are wanton women and there yep. is Mina Harker, who is a good woman who is tempted, but is fighting it. And like, yep. you know, why is Dracula dangerous? Because he is a seductive man, right? Like, right. but also there's something very queer going on between Dracula and Jonathan Harker. There's very something very queer so. going on between Mina and Lucy, Yes. There is even, there's like a passage in Dracula and like, I don't have a hand or I would try to find it, but like there, there, there are points where Jonathan self describes the ways in which he feels a kind of like, he feels womanly. He's like, oh, and I, I, you know, as I sit there in like the, you know, in the, the stone, on the stone bench and I like stare out the window, like a maiden gazing off to the sea to, for when her husband will return. Yeah. And like he is putting, yeah. he's putting himself in those shoes. And then, you know, there's something a, a little bit, a little bit queer about that. Yeah, and even, like, my favorite one to talk about is Jekyll and Hyde, right? Because, like, Jekyll and Hyde is a story about a respectable man who has unspeakable desires. Again, we hear that, like, you know, we see that code word. Who is for, who creates an alter ego so that he can indulge those desires. Explore that, yeah. When yep. that alter ego is going to be uh, discovered and revealed and exposed, uh, he kills himself rather than have it be made known and i don't think it is a coincidence that the two men who are about to discover him are a doctor and a lawyer right like oh, the I two see. instruments of the victorian state which were right. most day well not quite most dangerous because the cops were also up there but you know among the dangerous apparatuses of the victorian state if you were queer yeah and so yeah i think a lot of a lot of horror in the victorian period and a lot of a lot of the sites of horror in the gothic are about fears about either transgressing gendered expectations and that includes expectations of what correct gendered relationship you know of, of like you right. know what correct you know orientations look like and interest in reproduction and all that kind of stuff yeah either transgressing it or failing to live up to it mm. these are the two kind of like great specters that loom or two of the great specters that loom in the heart of the gothic and which get coded as monstrous, right? Like well, right. either this transgression or this failure is makes you a monster. Well, they become they become a convenient vehicle, right? To be able to tell those stories and to explore those stories in an analogy that can be safe for the world to read. And for those that it will talk to, it'll speak to them as well. Right. And yeah. And there's and there's this sense, too, where, like, a lot of gothic literature, gothic literature in some ways is a very deeply conservative genre that, like, right, like, it evokes, the, you know, we evoke the specter of Dracula, and mm. Dracula is, Vanquished. you know, 
Yeah, exactly. And Dracula is Eastern European and he's kind of Jewish coded and he's queer coded and he's, but also at the same time, he's a hypersexual man who's going to steal all our women and he's Irish Catholic coded and he's Irish Protestant coded at the same time in weird and entangled ways that like, I'm not going to get into. (laughs) And like Dracula is all of these kind of like dreadful things and we're all shivering and it's, it's very thrilling. And then he is defeated. Cultural anxiety is put to bed. You know, we're tucked in. It's okay, British Empire. Nothing's going to, you know, nothing's going to go wrong. We can live forever. <laughs> Everything's fine. Which is hilarious. The, the, not to go on a tangent about Dracula, the, the existential terror at the heart of Dracula that everyone always overlooks is at one point, Van Helsing is talking about the nature of vampires and he says that they're like ticks or maggots uh, that crawl out like to pick over the corpses of dying empires. The great existential threat at the heart of Dracula is if Dracula is in Britain, dot, dot, dot. And it's never, and that's, that's as much as Bram Stoker ever says about it. But I think that unspoken threat is a really like interesting piece of the themes of that novel. People that listen to this podcast have heard me say this several times. Um, I don't think, Dracula gets the credit. It's a book that I revisit over and over again. And it, it, it is, it works on so many levels in so many ways, so many different angles, uh, angles that we've just talked about now, but literally in the art of storytelling and the way it unfolds things, the medium it uses to unfold those stories. It, it's, it's phenomenal work. So if you still listen to this podcast and have not read it, go and read it. Um, it it's, a, it's an unbelievable work. Go and check out Re-Dracula, which is a audio podcast where they're currently adapting Dracula, like, as we speak. Um, Interesting. I don't really know cool. about this podcast. Oh, that's it's a cool, cool podcast, Craig. Also, don't go and watch Last Voyage of the Demeter. That movie was disappointing. <laughs> I, I, it's, you know what's so funny about that? A, a, good, a good buddy of mine who's a writer sent me the trailer for it, and I was just like, this looks like an amazing five sessions of role-playing. In a terrible movie. <laughs> I think th- I think you could have made an incredible film in it. I just think they, like, yeah, yeah. I think it is a scenario that is rife for a good film. I just think they Ugh. made a bit, they made a series of baffling, characteristically Hollywood decisions, uh, trying to pivot it towards being an action film and being tied into the Dracula franchise. That I think did it absolutely no favors and ruined oh, all the too bad. good bits that it could. That's have too bad. Right. So, Luke, we have this shelf now. We have this shelf where where. Penny Dreadful has been sitting. Dracula's child has been sitting. But at some point you say, I want to play there. And, and when does that happen? When do you start saying that there's there there's play to happen? Yeah, I think it is. It is probably like, God, the passage of time these days has become really weird. I feel like COVID's thrown me off. I'm going to say 2018. <laughs> oh, but you're like, not alone. Yeah, I'm going to say 2018, but like, you know, plus or minus two years on either side. Of, you know, like everyone just like be generous. Um Call it 2018. And yeah, like I, I'm rewatching Penny Dreadful with a friend. We're now post my degree. So I've written all of those essays, not just half of them. And I'm watching the first season again. And like, like watching all of these connections form and like, you know, see it all come together. And it occurs to me, I'm like, you know, like, there's, there's a role-playing game in this. And also at this time, 
also at the time, and maybe it was maybe it was more like 2019. Now that I think about it, because also at this time, I have at, at this point read um, uh, Blowing, uh, Dream of Skew and Dream of Palm mm-hmm. by Avery Alder and Ben Ben Rosenbaum. And so, you know, I know I know about the existence of of those games. I know about the existence of that that structure. And like part of this, Greg, I'll, I'll be honest with you, right? Technically, this is the second edition of Grand Guignol. That game, like a PDF, you know, a PDF only, like a digital, you know, Indian itch style release of that game happened in 2020. Uh, it is now a much more robust game and it, you know, it's been improved in just about every way it can be. And so like, you know, I think back to like, what exactly set me off? <sighs> I don't know that I, I don't know that I really <laughs> Well, so, so I here's feel the- like, yeah, I feel like there was something in, and like, maybe I just, I feel like I just played some kind of a like historical game and I don't remember who right. with. But, like, I played a game that was set somewhere in the 1880s through 1920, like, somewhere in that period. And, like, that game was fine. It was probably, I'm almost certain it was, like, a Call of Cthulhu game. And I was like, that was okay. But, like, there's more interesting things to do with this period. Luke, this is not the first game that I've had, that we've talked about on this podcast that was inspired by Penny Dreadful, right? That has, that has turned out to be a very ripe guard for, for more than a few games because it brought back, aspects of gothic which we hadn't seen in a lot right but you saw something tied to avery's game in there, right you saw an aspect that that is a little bit different so it's not the monster hunter angle yeah it's not the uh it, to point it's at, the community angle and that's what i'm trying to yeah go ahead yeah to point to point directly right to, to name the thing rather than talking around it right like the other the other big game in this space is uh jason cordova's the between which right. is, you know, one of the one of the carved by Brindlewood uh, games, and as you know, in keeping with the fact that it's carved by Brindlewood, Jason has made the like uh, mystery procedural uh, Penny Dreadful show, and I've made the like messy queer drama <laughs> Penny Dreadful show. Um, and I think, I think part of this too is because I was on a kick at the time where, just in general, I was. This is going to sound... I was kind of over games with plot. Interesting. And I feel like this was like a continuum of, you know, I, you know, at this point I'd been, you know, aware of Apocalypse World for six years. I'd written my first PBTA game, you know. I'm, and so I'm like deep in like play to find out what happens, you know, like don't prepare a plot, you know, see what happens at the table. But also just like increasingly I was like, there are interesting... I had, I, you know, I was... I was thinking a lot about Ursula Le Guin, who has always been like a really beloved author of mine. Like, you know, Ursula Le Guin talked a lot in her lifetime about the idea that like, you know, there's this notion that stories must include conflict uh, that she was kind of like quite scornful of. And so I had, you Mm -hmm. know, I had that in the back of my brain. And I just like, I felt like all of the most interesting parts of Penny Dreadful were not to me at that time, the parts where they were, you know, off to fight the big vampire man boss. It was, you know, it was the bit where like, and then Ethan and Dorian Gray go out, you know, clubbing for the evening and they like visit the dog fighting ring and they like get drunk and Ethan gets in a fight and Dorian drags him home and then they 
and then they fuck and or you know or like the episode where like you know ethan and vanessa go to the seaside to try and like recover from her trauma and i'm like these are the parts of this show that i'm like interested in like the plot is you know it's got a good plot i enjoyed that show but like i wasn't interested in from a gaming perspective i wasn't like ooh, i'm really looking for like you know another game to do like mystery stuff with um at that time i was kind of satisfied with trail of cthulhu to the extent that i was interested in mystery gaming and so what i was like you know what i was you know i had dream askew and dream apart on the brain and i was like you know, it's these characters and their relationships and the kind of community that right. they're in and the ways in which that community is under threat, both from within and without. Like, that's the part of this that I'm like, you know, that feels like a fun playground to be in and to kind of like explore. And then I started writing it and then it's it's not honest to say the the queer that how queer the game was was it like an accident um like, like that's not, i want to be clear that's not true right like i right. didn't go into this being like i'm just gonna write a penny dreadful game Oops, oh my god I, it's queer i tripped over and queerness <laughs> fell all over like that's not what happened but as i wrote it um I think the extent to which right. I was interested in leaning in to that queer read, that was kind of a thing that I found in the writing of the first edition. And particularly to um, uh, my friend Riley Rethel had just released a game called Venture that was like a, again, like an itch, like an itch indie PDF only release of like an ash can for a belonging outside belonging game about like introspective introspective kind of melancholy fantasy it was like what if dungeons and dragons was written by a marxist had no monsters and was interested in like these characters relationships to the the power that they wield and them and each other um and you know uh that game ended up being published uh by possum creek along with another game called dungeon written by j dragon uh but there was a thing that Riley had put in Venture, which was this pick list about like, choose two things that you, you know, two things that you are and two things that you struggle to be, or two things you are or two things you are not. And it suddenly occurred to me that like, how you are regarded both, you know, how you regard yourself and how society regards you is a very key victorian anxiety and that that was also a lens onto gender that could be interesting and productive where i could say here is a playbook where you know here's the you know the list of those options and one of the options is a man society sees me as a man and i don't mm-hmm suddenly all of the moves that we've got in this playbook like we're reading them in a certain way right and Society does not see me as a man, but I do. We're reading, we're reading them in another way now. And also, crucially, because the thing that I, the more I went down the like, you know, the road into the historical read, I did not want this game to be a game that demanded that you reenact and, you know, roll around in the mud of historical bigotry. Right. Uh, also, there was no, like, there's no functional version of Grand Guignol that does the things it does in, that pretends that the Victorian period was like was toothless for queer people, right? Like, sure. there's no way to there's no way to write the game 
to be about period queerness where that works and is functional. Yeah. So there, it had to be a game that engaged with and recognized the fact that the world was not, was, was dangerous for, and in many ways shitty to queer people at the time. Yep. But I didn't want to demand the players like dive in and wallow in it mandatorily. And so, so I, it being one pick list option among many meant that there was room to, you know, if you wanted, you could be like, I'm going to pick two, you know, ways that I'm seen and that I see myself that have nothing to do with my character's gender and uh, yep. just vibe. And I'm just a werewolf. Uh, well, I want to talk a little bit about this because it, it's interesting. There's, you know, I, I've had Avery on the show um, and there's a lot of people listening, even though this game has come up a lot in, uh, in, in my interview the belonging outside of belonging system. There's a lot of people listening right now that have never played that system, mm. right? Are not familiar with this aspect of the hobby. And I want to speak to them for just a second. If we can, Luke, let's say that they are, their interest is peaked right now, right? Okay. They're like, the setting is super interesting. The stuff that Craig and Luke are talking about is very interesting, but I've never been here. Right. Uh, we have listeners who aren't queer that are wondering, is this even a game for me or not? And I want to give them an on-ramp because yeah. this is a game for them, quite frankly. So how, how do we on-ramp, on-ramp that person who may feel like, I just want to go back and play Pathfinder, but, but this is interesting to me and I want to help them explore this aspect of the hobby. So can you think of, I'm not looking for an elevator pitch here, but what, when they get this book, right, and they open it up and they get some friends together and they say, I want to try this out. How do we on-ramp that person into, into playing this game? Yeah, that is a really good question. I think part of it is um, structural in that okay. there is an the order of operations in which you create the layers of the game very deliberately builds. First, you build your version of London in right like that you will play in, right? Like both what does it look like and what you know, what are folks worried about right now? Is it rising rent or is it that there's a serial killer on the loose or is it that there's a ghost out on the moor? Like what, what does our palette of, of anxieties look like? And then we, and then we funnel down a little bit and we say, you know, key, you know, they're called setting elements in much the same way as they are in Dream Askew and Dream Apart. But a phrase I use to describe them in the kind of writing around them is like monstrous forces, uh, capitalism, uh, tradition, uh, the modern age, uh, mm. monstrosity, and like your own past. And then also all the other people in the city. But like that one is less monstrous, in, in my opinion. Uh, and so we say, right, like the game takes a very you know, opinionated. Look, this is a game that is very opinionated and I don't apologize for that fact. You know, it's so like the game says, I am going to draw a very direct line between vampires and the tropes of vampires and capitalism, right? Which is truly the greater horror, the vampire's thirst or a landlord's endless greed. Those are the same thing to this game. And so the game says to you, all right, that's going to be a thing that exists in the world that is a, a great, a monstrous force moving around and over your characters. What does your version, like hone in a little, what does your version of it look like? What, what do all these predators have in common? 
you know, the modern age is here. Modernity is happening. We're like, you know, the apex of the industrial revolution has happened. We are in the, in the moment of the modern age. What are the, what are the aims of the modern project? What are the competing things that it purports to be after? Are these things often contradictory? Yes, of course they are. That's what the early history of modernity looked like. That's why we're talking about. And so you shape that and you build in that way, you build the social world and the kind of material world that has given rise to the characters. And then you make the characters with that context, knowing what their world looks like. And so it kind of like, it slow feeds you in, you know, like. Yeah. And that's something that's I think important for people to understand here, because um, I, I have, I'm learning more and more about this is everything that Luke just described. Play has already begun. Right. So when we talk about this procedural process that Luke talked about, this isn't session zero shit. This is part of the game. Yeah. And I, and I reference things like um, like Microscope and other games like this that are very procedural to to world build. But you've already started playing. Yeah. Right. And so when we think about now, I'm going to make my character. You've already started playing the game. Is that an accurate character? Yes. No. One hundred percent. There is. The big metaphor that I use with Grand Guignol is that this is a game about writing your own kind of like secret history of, of, of people whose lives have been kind of like marginalized and erased from history. And like, you know, if I were to go out and write a history book right now, you know, I don't start writing the history book when I start writing the first chapter. The research process is also writing the book. Uh, And so in that way, you know, as you write your queer history of your queer history of London and of these characters, yeah, you're building the world around them is part of play. Even like there is a passage in the book uh, called Our Secret History in which I attempt to like sketch out a picture of London in, in the moment, right? The good, the bad, and the kind of queer, the queer and the, the overlooked. And like, to my mind, the reading of that and the kind of evocation of that is also part of the act of play and is like a really crucial moment of everyone's kind of imaginations becoming engaged. But yeah, and there is like, I would say because creating characters in any belonging outside belonging game is by instruction and by design, like, yes, at the end of the day, you have the ultimate say over which pick list options you do and don't choose. Like, this is not me saying that we're all, you know, it's like a, a totally anarchist game. Right. It's just a mostly anarchist game. Um, but there is kind of ex- explicit encouragement in, in both the original games and in Grand Guignol that, like, creating characters should be even more so than like uh you know like a pbta game or whatever like it should be a communal experience right like as you yeah. look at pick lists and are like ah like three of these sound really good to me but it says i only have to pick two like ask your fellow players to kibitz get them to have an opinion talk about the things that you're choosing as you go along like create character creation should not be a lonely experience where everyone kind of puts their head down for 10 minutes and does a test it should be a conversation and a kind of collaboration. And in that way, yeah, very literally, it is already you are playing because you then bleed very naturally, right? Like one of the modes of play in a belonging outside belonging game is idle dreaming, which is mm-hmm. just that conversation continuing about what things you're curious about, what our characters might do, what do we think is an interesting thing to happen next? 
And I think another thing the game does as far as on-ramping goes is I know some people can experience a bit of a disconnect where we go from the very structured, you know, kind of like setting elements and character, you know, ask us to make choices from lists. And then we are asked to answer questions that are open-ended, right? We do our relationship mm-hmm. stuff where instead of saying to you, Craig, pick one of three, I ask you, Craig, why do I make your skin? Why does my character make your, make your character's skin crawl? And you just have to figure out the answer to that question. It's kind of open-ended. But going from that kind of open-ended to just like, and now we have to talk together and figure out what the first scene is going to be can be a bit of a, a culture shock, right? Like there's a bit of a missing on-ramp there. And Look, a lot of the time, momentum is going to carry you. Good play practice is going to carry you. Comfort with the people at the table is going to carry you. But for tables where that isn't the case, for instances where we're all a bit tired this week, for instances where, you know, it's been, you know, it's like session four and it's been three weeks since we last played and everyone kind of started to forget a little bit what's going on. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a piece of tech in Grand Guignol specifically to kind of like on to be that ramp, uh, which are yeah. the, occa- the occasions. Which are, what are those? I know you've had Meg and Vincent on the show. Did you guys get a chance to talk about firebrands and the king is dead? You know, it's familiar, but I don't remember. So, yeah, let, so let's assume we did. These are uh, brilliant games by the Bakers. Uh, a bunch of games have then been built, you know, on this. Lo and behold, the Bakers made a really brilliant engine and a bunch of people yeah, yeah. then proceeded to... <laughs> Break, breaking news. Well, who could guess? <laughs> um, they're kind of like, and I know Vincent and Meg have gestured a lot back at like uh, Victorian era party games. They're like collections of party games. Okay. So like The King is Dead is a game about, you know, fantasy political intrigue a la Game of Thrones. The King is Dead, right? Houses are vying. Who's going to become, you know, the next king? And it consists of a series of mini games. There's a mini game for having a duel. There's a mini game for having a meal. There's a mini game for stealing time together with a partner who you shouldn't be stealing time with. There's a mini game for, you know, having a war, etc. And you basically go around the table and each person, you know, chooses a mini game. And the mini game tells you how to begin it, how to conduct it, what the players who aren't playing it, but are just the audience, like what their role is and how to kind of resolve it at the time when it's ended. And so I borrowed a bunch of that architecture and wrote a bunch of these kind of quintessential Victorian occasions. There's one for going to a fancy party. There's one for holding a seance. There's one for being alone in your bedroom at night or in a confessional booth and uh, a, a monster is suddenly in the shadows kind of threateningly making conversation with you uh, and you're not really sure what's going on. Mm. My One of my favorite gothic beats. Yeah. You know, there's one for like, a, you know, we've got a problem. It, you know, let's have a council of war about it. There's one for it doing an investigation scene. And the point of these is basically to make it when you lose momentum or you lose certainty and the idle dreaming starts to become no longer productively meandering, but just aimlessly wheel spinning, which can happen. Mm It gives you it gives you an option then and a fallback tool, which is great. We go to a list of eight occasions and we pick one and we just do it because we think it sounds cool. And 
they're all written and designed in such fashion that hopefully they will inject a bunch of fresh momentum and interesting things and consequences back into the conversation so that either they will lead you straight on into a scene or even if they don't, they will kind of like give the engine a kick so that the idle dreaming goes back to being kind of productive uh, and taking you actively forward. Oh, that's really cool. So the last thing before we move on, I want to talk about you participating in the game, seeing the game played, uh, being an observer to play testing. I want to talk and hear about a moment of surprise. So you create this game, you, you, you've written it out, you've handed it over to a table, whether you were at the table or not, doesn't matter to me. When has this, when has the people playing the game surprised? Was there any moments you saw that you never saw coming or, or, playtest reports that you're like oh wow i didn't i never would have thought it went this way the other aspect of that is you're watching this game play tested you're 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 facilitating the game and you see the nodes connect right things that you wrote down things that pieces you put together you saw somebody else build the lego box that, that when you spilled the Legos out on the table, you saw them build it. Where are moments where you sat back and went, this game's ready. I, I, I think, I think this is game. I think this game is where it needs to be. Is there moments that we can talk about at the table where that happened? Yeah. And I think it ties into this kind of like the, the ways in which this is kind of technically a second edition. Um, where like, you know, the first edition, you know, was published you know, I start working on a second edition. Eventually I have, you know, I start talking with my, my, my now publisher. I commit to the idea that like, is I'm going to do this. Um, and, a, you know, a lot is different in the game. Every playbook has been heavily revised to lean even, even further into the queerness. That's, that's what my design process looks to, like for this game. It looks like. Just like, how can I make this queer? How can I make it queerer? How can I make it sharper? How can I make it stab you and hurt you more? Um, or pull at your heartstrings more. There's a new, there's a brand new playbook now, um, that I had the idea of in the first edition, but the draft of it I had, I wasn't comfortable with. I, I didn't feel happy mm-hmm. about it or good about it. And so I, I, I just put it back on the shelf and I said, I'll come back to that at some point. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I write the, you know, I, I wrote the, you know, the bones of the, the revised edition, the first pass happened, the occasions came into existence, and I playtested it for the first time uh, with mm-hmm. some friends of mine. And we, we playtested our first occasion, um, which was the visitation, of course, of course. Um, and this was with a friend of mine who was a trans woman who was playing The Ward, which is a playbook about being kind of like uh, a kind of sheltered and somewhat privileged character who has, mm. you know, like, dr- you know, dreams of joining the wider world and kind of longings that are currently repressed in the environment they're in. And she played uh, her character as like a kind of closeted um trans woman um right. who was in a in a family situation where you know they weren't able to uh to get through that and the visitation which is meant to be this kind of like 
mostly kind of like, ooh, it's ominous, it builds tension, it's spooky. Uh, it, it turned into that character, like, asking the spooky, like, ghost lady to kill her father and free her from that, from that repressive oh, environment. Ha- oh, all right, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. So uh, we're not going to relive the whole thing, but how did we get from A to B? That's super interesting. The journey that she took. Yeah. How do we, how do we, how do we get there from A to B? I mean, I, the key, the key beat was right. Like, um, we talked a lot about the, the setting element that's about kind of like tradition and folklore. It's the little bit of, uh, of harvest that's in Grand Guignol. Um, and and so like you know the the creature that showed up was like the ghost of a witch that she like you know had okay. had had summoned to kind of like see if it could help her with its its dilemmas and like I made the choice I was just like you know this is the ghost of a witch this witch knows what's up you know she's a witch she's very clever uh, she is going to correctly like gender and you know talk to and engage with this character in a way that's very gender affirming. Um, and very like you know, and very maternal in that way, and like, and like honestly, that was the domino, right? Like the domino of this is the life I could be living if my if it weren't oh, for my father, uh, if it weren't for the prison that I'm in. Like that was that was the first domino, and then like you know, look, was this witch? Uh, did they have holy good intentions? Of course they didn't. That's it's a visitation. It's a monster. That's not the, that's right. not the point of the mini game. And so like yep. you know. I, you know, I was trying to lure this character into the darkness, but that was the that was the uh, the first pebble of the avalanche that led to at the end of the oh. scene the witch being like, "I really hate your father." You see, he's just he's a terrible man. He's very inconvenient for me, um, and all I need you to do is just give give me permission. Just you know, you live in this house. You're the heir to this house mystically speaking that's important she didn't say that but that was the subtext well like all i need to do is let me in <laughs> that's all you gotta do and it was just it was, the invitation. It, was, it was it was like it was like a, a like a red hot it was a lightning bolt it was such a charged scene it ruled it was so cool and that was the point at which i was like the, like the new edition is going to work the the you know the choices Ugh. i've made in the revision are starting to bear fruit the new architecture is like is productive and functional and great uh i think we then proceeded yeah. to then all have a party which was great too that was that was also fun uh in that playtest and then yeah from there it was just like it was just stages of like shaving off another you know another little layer keeping the game from being the the best of a version of itself and like chasing, following uh, it, that, following that guiding star of like, we want to push towards that kind of play. Well, and, and we flippantly use the phrase, you know, play to find out, but, but that's a perfect example of, that, right. Of, of pushing the player via the character at that pressure point, a decision needs to be made. The decision is made, which will surprise everybody at the table, including the person who made the decision. And then exploring what's next, mm. which is a beautiful part of, of the hobby. And, and, and it's those moments, even when you get people to talk about their session of D&D. They don't talk about critting on the on the monster and then I did 25 points of damage. They talk about those moments that you just talked about where the pressures pushed and pushed and pushed and, and, and a landmark decision was made. And then we, then we figured out what was next before. 
Yeah, we um we talk a lot about how system matters, but I think a thing that is you know, I, this is not a novel observation. I don't think anyone will be, you know, you know, will, will be mind blown by this. But like, ultimately, the system that all games have in common is the hardware of the human imagination that they're being played yes. on. And other human beings are fundamentally unknowable to us because they, you know, they, they, they live in other skins. They live internal, rich yep. internal lives of their own. And so to me, the most magical thing about role playing will always be the fact that another human being's decision-making is part of the engine and is, like, everyone is always talking about, like, oh, you know, like dice, cards, randomization engines, like, you know, how does a diceless RPG still engaging? And I'm like, the most engaging part of any RPG from a randomness perspective is the, like, you know chunk of meat sitting between the ears of the person on the other side of the table from you that is the most random thing of all forget the dice it is and 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 and, and to, to create a culture of play that allows that to happen right gives permission for that to happen and then and then as soon as that raw meat lands on the table everybody goes in for dinner right so everybody goes that just happened and now we're gonna go now we're gonna lean into this and yep and it's oh it's so amazing when that happens and that can happen in any system if you've got the right table culture um luke i'm gonna do a terrible thing which is i literally we're two hours in i could talk to you for another two three hours um we won't be able to spend as much time on harvest as as i think it likely deserves but there's aspects i think of harvest that we've kind of covered a little bit what I want to do before we close out is, is I want to hand this over to you. I want you to talk about Harvest so we can understand what the other game is. We're not going to give it as much time um, as we gave the first game, but that's okay. Can we get a sense of what Harvest is and how it's different? I would say in many ways, at least on the surface, Harvest is a less high concept game. Oh, how so? Than Grand Guignol. Uh, I wrote Harvest because I thought to myself, man, the Wicker Man was fucking <laughs> sick. That, that that movie ruled. God, it, it is it is an incredible as a horror as a horror like theme. I, like I I search to experience the Wicker Man for the first time again. And if you have not seen that movie, the movie was seventies, right? Seventy three. Uh, Seventy three, like early seventy year after I was born. That movie, you can watch it today if you've never seen it. And that movie is unbelievable. And a lot of my Constantly, I want to find a new horror movie. I want to I want to seek out a new thriller is to is to reenact and relive the first time I saw. Wicker. So how does Harvest tie to Wicker? Clive, I've got good news. I've got good news for you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Harvest basically comes out of, you know, I, I am a I am a horror fan. I am a folk horror fan. I am an anth- I'm an anthropologist of religion. Like folklore is a thing that I am interested in and invested yeah. in in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, I love The Wicked Man. I love Midsommar. In 2018, uh, well, the film came out in 2018. At some point after 2018, I watch a film called Apostle. Uh, It is a Netflix film. It is a period folk horror film. Um, So it's like folk horror, like, you know, what if The Wicked Man was set in 1850? Um, Got it. And it's like... You know, it's not a perfect film, but it's a pretty cool film. Uh, like, I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Michael Sh- Michael Sheen is there. You know, I recommend it. Um, and 
I watched this film and this film suddenly makes me realize two things. One of them is because we are so in love with the Wicker Man, we forget that. Right, because there's, you know, there's a there's a trilogy that is the foundation of uh, folk horror, or British folk horror anyway. Mm-hmm. It's the Wicker Man, it's uh, Witchfinder General, and it's Blood on Satan's Claw. Witchfinder General. The the, yeah. the three, you know, the three the three roots. Two of those all, are historic. All three amazing movies. Yeah, and two of them are historic, right? Like Which both Witchfinder General yeah. and Blood on Satan's Claw are like period period pieces. It is we, the Wicked Man is an outlier in being a relatively contemporary uh, yes. film, and so something yeah. about seeing the the kind of archetypal. There is a remote community. There is a sacrifice. There is a, you know, there is a stranger from the outside who's got a weird perspective on this. There are people on the inside who have their own kind of complicated relationships to it. Something about seeing that very familiar shape of the Wicker Man in a historic setting just like set fire to something in my brain. I'm always, when it comes to British history, I'm always thinking about industrialization. Like I'm always thinking about the Industrial Revolution. And so, Harvest is set a hundred years or so before Grand Guignol. It Uh is a game about the 1790s. And so it is a game about, you know, the middle of the age of steam, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution as a real kind of force. On the mainland, you know, trains are chewing through the countryside, factories are beginning to emerge. But like on this remote, you know, island uh, off the coast of Britain, you know, there's, you know, there's this golden paradise preserved, but at, but at what cost? And, you know, that, mm, that is the question we must answer, right? You know, who, whose blood must be spilled to feed the land and who will hold the knife? And so in many ways, I think Harvest is a much more structured game um, oh, okay. than Grand Guignol, right? Like Grand Guignol, in Grand Guignol, we play to find out what will happen to these people. Which is a, a very open-ended question, right? Like yep. any, you know, and like that covers what will happen to their relationships with one another, what will be their fates, what will be their relationships with these monstrous forces that are moving around them. Anything could happen. Harvest is asks some very, you know, we play to find out whose blood must be spilled to feed the land, whose hand must hold the knife, and will they like will you go through it or not? Right? It lays out. It lays out the terms of the bargain. It says, you know, if they die, you know, paradise preserved. If they don't, paradise over. And then, mm-hmm. it, and then it, and then it kind of like throws its hand out up and says, all right, it like is it worth it? Right. Not my problem. Like you tell me. And so, in that way, it is a much, it is a much, you know, it's a much sharper kind of uh, game in some ways. You know, it's got an act structure. Like it is, it is much more kind of like formally proceeding in many ways i think it is more of a lineage like if grand guignol is very much of the lineage of like i play apocalypse world for the first time and john macon blows my mind by jamming it that way harvest is very shaped by john hughes tells me about what price liberty and is like and then like these like four events happen they you know they go to a wake they go to a graveyard right. they go to a church they arrive in london do they do it or not bada boom bada bing bada big catharsis at the end harvest is very much more i think shaped by that idea of like yeah it's this idea from our local play culture and the system of thing of like I'm going to tell you very explicitly up front what the box is. Like, I'm going to say to you, 
here is the box today, and we're all gonna we're all here because we're excited about the box. Let me tell you where the walls of the box are. Inside the box, there's a bunch of fun stuff for you to do. Right. And now we're all gonna explore the box. <laughs> and like, you know, it's 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 a culture of play that is very much not interested in the idea of like, but how do you how do you make sure that they stay in the box without railroading them? And it's just like you told them what the box is. You got buy-in for the box. Like you you don't need to do that. Well, in some ways, it sounds to me like it might be the easier of the two for the newbie, right? It might be, is it possibly that on-ramp that we talked about a little bit where maybe we try Harvest first because it's so it's more structured and more procedural? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. That's fair it for is that? Also, I would say mechanically, it is probably slightly more complex. Um, Interesting. It does some stuff with, normally, Bob games have a very, very... Um, elegant kind of simplicity to their token economy right there's 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 just one loop you know make 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 strong move give token away make you know a vulnerable move take token back kind of and we just do that ad nauseum and there's no limit on the number of tokens harvest says oh god let me i wish i had a diagram craig for you okay so imagine here's the like welcome to the island sheet right which is our map of the island we made some choices about it the characters can make selfish moves to take tokens from the island or desperate moves when they behave antisocially and they can make communal moves and give tokens back to the island okay that's fundamentally the same loop as uh, you know any belonging outside belonging game the difference is there's a road out of the loop where tokens can exit play forever, which is each of the characters in this game has a power, capital P, power, backing them up. Mm. For all of the local characters, the characters who are from the island, the old blood, sorry, the old name, the young blood, the dreamer, the wise one, and the homecomer, these are supernatural forces. Mm-hmm. These are sleeping sleeping dragons, or these are fairy queens, or these are witchcraft, you know, traditions of witchcraft, or mermaids out in the bay. And for the stranger, who is the like, um, I can't remember his name. You know the guy. You remember the guy in The Wicker Man? Yes. The, the sergeant guy, that right, guy, the right. guy, the outsider, the, the, the outsider, guy, the outsider or, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so for the stranger, these are the most monstrous powers in the game. They are, uh, you are a servant of the British crown here on a mission for the king. They are, you are a missionary from the church of England here to convert these people by force if necessary. Or they are, you are a representative of the British academic institution here to, kind of like colonize the folkways of these people on behalf yep. of the British Museum. Uh, you know, the, all of the worst powers of them all and the most messed up ones. And so the powers also give you moves. They give you occult moves that you can make. Right. Uh, and the way you make those occult moves is that you take a token and you give it to your power. Can you get it oh, back? Oh, that's interesting. No, you can't. Right. It is now out of the loop. And eventually... Uh, play will grind to a halt because there will not be, like, the, you know, the economy will be empty. There'll be no more tokens. Yeah. But you see, Craig, there is a secret source of tokens that you can turn to, which is uh, the the almanac of the ritual, which has the three acts in it in the omens of the sacrifice. And every time an omen of the sacrifice happens... One token for each character that witnesses it moves off the almanac and onto the island and kind of reinvigorates the flow. That's really cool. Once each act is empty of tokens, that act is over. And then we move to the next act and the omens are worse 
in each act, you know, they, they get more fucked up, of course. Oh, um, that's cool. That, that, and that creates cool such of, a stage for exciting choices. That's really yeah, and cool. And so, you know, ultimately players are mechanically, because like, the, here's the thing. The occult moves are so cool. The occult right. moves are so cool. Doing cool stuff with your power is so cool. You have no choice. Like you're going to make them. You're going to want right. to make them. They're so cool. And so the scarcity kind of like the, the the nature of scarcity will require if the players aren't already doing it just because they're hype about the omens being cool, which again, probably they will be. But even if they're not, pure numbers and scarcity will necessarily eventually force them to. And they will yep. have to move the counter towards the, the various decision points at which we discover, you know, whose blood, who are, who's, who's knife, oh, and will we do it or not? That totally clicks for me. That that makes you are you are very clever. You Thank are very you. I, very clever. That's interesting. <laughs> the um that that like approach to what if we did weirder weirder more complicated things with a Bob kind of token economy. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Jay Dragon, um, who has a gay who has a, a thing called the Nameless Engine, um, which is the variation on Bob used to power a game called Untitled One. Um, mm. That is only available uh, on on Patreon. Um, go back Jay's Patreon if you want to check this out. <laughs> Content warnings, all of them. This is like it is a really hard, brutal horror game, um, which I suspect is one of the reasons that it is not publicly, like it's never been published um, sure. directly. Uh, but yeah, like some some of this same idea of like, you know, what if in addition to the usual token flow, you could steal tokens from other players or you could give tokens to other players, you know, all of this stuff starts to come into the conversation. And then the other kind of like big mechanical thing that happens in Harvest is the powers have thresholds on them at three and six tokens where you've got, you've got a little taste of the power. You've given, mm. you've done three British crown moves. And now the British crown says, sorry. I'm going to cut you off, uh, and if you want if you want to make any more occult moves, uh, you need to do a favor for me. But if you do that favor for me, I'll give you another move, and it'll be a cooler, more powerful move. And all of these uh, demands that the powers make are designed to exacerbate tension in the community and ramp up tensions <laughs> such that the question of whether or not to uh, you know, whether or not to go through with the ritual and whether or not the characters will survive long enough to try it all becomes more and more kind of like in, in doubt as the community starts to turn in on itself like a Stephen King, a good Stephen King novel. Oh, that's um, the best pressure cooker. That's so good. That's so, so good. All right, Luke. So um, everybody listening, uh, we're recording this while the crowdfunding is happening. Everybody knows the routine. They can scroll down. They can find the links to the crowdfunding. If it is past crowdfunding, um, I, will it be safe to say that those links will still direct them to where they can pick up the games post crowdfunding? Yeah, and also uh, the PDFs will definitely be available on my itch.io page. Perfect, um, which we will link once to we as publish well. it at least. Which you know. perfect, perfect. Last but not least, um, as a fellow person who loves horror, mm. I need to know the more the most recent horror movie you've seen that won't get out of your brain. So one of the reasons Luke that I love horror is horror is a genre of movie that I will every once in a while, every 10th movie, there'll be a movie that won't get out of my head. So what is the most recent horror movie you've seen that will refuse to empty? I've got a movie answer and I've got a TV answer. I want and they're both. both and they're both Gothic. Beautiful. 
Um, recently, I rewatched Crimson Peak. Oh, I've got strong opinions. Go, go, go. And I think that film was unfairly maligned at the time of its release. I think that film is incredible. Um, I think. I don't. Look, Craig, you're allowed to be wrong about it. Um, I think I think it is a film. I think it plays in very broad strokes, but I think that kind of melodrama is very gothic. And I think, yeah, I think it kind of is a film where like you have to turn off the like the cynical kind of like parts of your brain and just like like lean into how like lush and over the top it is which uh, it is it, 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 and it's a beautiful it's a gorgeous movie gorgeous film it, it's gorgeous and he's always so good and i think what hurt me with that movie luke was i went in looking at the ingredients the cast the director the writer and i just went my god this is going to be the perfect movie and it wasn't and that was a not fair thing for me to walk into it so i yeah. do need to go back to it but but the movie broke my heart. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I love I think, everything about it. I think too, another thing is like people went into that film for whatever reason, expecting like a capital H horror movie. Mm, okay. It is a gothic romance. It is. It, it is, is adjacent, like it is adjacent to horror. It plays in a lot of the tropes of horror. It is certainly at at times it is very frightening. But like ultimately its emotional arc of Carfasis is not the arc of horror. And so I think. I think what many of his problems, I think, were audience expectation mismatch. Which is exactly what I just talked about. Yeah, no no question about it. Yeah, so Uh, I would say, like, what worked for you? Go back to it with that in mind and, like, yeah. Well, what what worked to me? I mean, that that film is a Grand Guignol game. Um, It's not set in London, but it is a game of Grand Guignol. Um, Yeah. Right? Like, you can draw the uh, Tom Hiddleston's character is the ward. Right, like stuck in a repressive family yep. situation with unfulfilled desires. Uh, his sister is the patron, a like wealthy eccentric with a bunch of resources who can transform or destroy people's lives. Uh, Edith is the scholar, a character kind of consumed by like a existential philosophical obsession and question, and trying the to. The doctor like, is. Uh, I don't know. The doctor is like a secondary character. I don't know that he's like a PC. Would be my answer to that, which maybe is a bit of a cop out. Um, no, that's fair. That's fair. And yeah, I also just like the way in which that film makes the cult, you know, the ancestral legacy of the family and the, you know, the ways in which the aristocracy is fundamentally like a violent institution yep. and the red clay of the soil and the like ways Industrial in which the world nature. Is changing. All of these things are putting conversation with each other in a way that is very much like That's fair. what Frank Guignol is doing. And I was like, yes, I might yes. need to go back also, to it. And like, you know, the it shared, I think, a director of cinematography, but I might be wrong. One of the key creatives on it uh, also worked on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, um, OK. And said in interviews at the time after Bram Stoker's Dracula, it was the film he'd worked on that used the most practical effects. Which, look, anytime you're doing practical effects in a horror film online, sign me up. Um, yeah, gorgeous film, great soundtrack, some really good performances. All right, I'm going to have to go back. You've, you're all right, you've convinced me. I'm going to give it a... About, there's something about the inevitability of it all that I actually think... Re- and maybe this is... It improves on a second watching, but, like, you can totally see... Like, all of it is... You can see all of it coming, and in some ways that makes it all the more gut-wrenching, watching it inevitably proceed... And knowing that there were so many ways for them all to have, like, escaped this horrible tangle of, like, fates. And yet. Yeah, and it, 
now you're making me now you're making now you're you're changing my memory of the movie now because you're right i'm gonna i'm gonna go back and watch it because i don't think you're wrong i don't think you're wrong and i think expectations was the was the big problem and in a second viewing my expectations would be very very different because i did i cannot disagree with anything you said yeah as someone who opened with i didn't like that movie and i think especially on the second viewing like given the i'm gonna try and be like non-spoilery here because you know i want to encourage our listeners to watch it too uh Tom Hiddleston's character is not being entirely upfront uh, and straightforward with his intentions. Yes. Uh, and I don't think, I think people will probably catch on to this fairly early on. And like re-watching the film once you know the whole picture and trying to figure right. out like at what point does he fall for the con? Yes. Right? Because he definitely does. Like, at yes. what point does he fall for it? There's a bunch of the kind of underlying subtext of what's going oh, on that's in the, yep. of the plot that is, like, very interesting to kind of, like, theorize about on a second watch. So yep. absolutely no, check right. that out. All right, TV uh, show. also, uh, I have recently been watching Mike Flanagan's The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, so I've not started it yet, but everybody's telling me, like, holy shit, Craig, you need to watch this. Oh, it's a masterpiece. It's so... It's... In the same way that Midnight Mass to me is Mike Flanagan, like, you know, Haunting Hill House, Bly Manor, they're both good. They're both doing really interesting things. They're both doing, I think, a similar thing. Midnight yeah, Mass is and, also and doing a similar perfect. thing. neither was perfect. Both were very good. Yeah. Yep. I think Midnight Mass is, the, is him at the height of his powers of that mode. Yep. Like, it takes what didn't quite come together in those other two, and it, like, Midnight Mass is flawless for my money. Yep. And I think similarly... uh. I know that God. What was the thing that he worked on before for the House of Usher? It's the pet. It was the pastiche. Uh, the Midnight Club. The Midnight. Oh, I've Club. not seen that. Right. So the Midnight Club is based on a single novel by I think Christopher Pike is the name of the guy who's like a YA author who wrote a lot of horror. Like it's ostensibly based on one of his works, but the framing device of it is the kids all like tell each other ghost stories. And instead of using any of the ghost stories from the novel, he adapted all of Christopher Pike's other films into the ghost stories because they bought the whole catalog. And The Midnight Club, deep, you know, flawed piece. It's good. It's not great. It doesn't quite come together. There are some real issues. Everything he had to say about how they, what their plans for season two, I actually find really annoying and I think would have been terrible. Uh, it's big firefly energy in that way. Um, <laughs> I love that I knew exactly what that meant. <laughs> and like, and like, but I think if the Midnight Club is him experimenting with this mode of what if we pretend to adapt a single work by an author, but really adapt the catalog, I think uh, Fall of the House of Usher is him doing that with Poe, having figured out how it works oh, and doing it like in, again, in full flight. Um You know, some people have been writing thing pieces online complaining that, uh, it's the, about the fact that it doesn't have incest in it uh, because they think that that's the point of the fall of the House of Usher. And to those people, I would say, you need to reread the House of Usher. That is not what the short story is about. It's about the inevitability of mortality and a man's obsessive fixation with it and how his life, his works, and his uh, family's generational home are all intermingled. And the show absolutely does deliver on oh, that. The thing that House of Usher is actually about. Also, Mark Hamill's in it, and he's great. And I love to see Mark Hamill doing things. It's like in Andor, when Andy Serkis was in it as himself, and 
absolutely crushed it. Anytime I see Mark Hamill in a thing and get to just like crush it, like, and he's not like being the Joker or whatever, he's just yeah. like being Mark Hamill, an extremely good actor who isn't Luke Skywalker. I'm like, yeah, that's my boy. Crush it. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, I got to say, Luke, there is a lot of really cool things to do on a Saturday afternoon in Australia. And it doesn't involve talking to me about amazing things about games. So I really do appreciate you making the time. Uh, it's been an absolute delight, Craig. Uh, what a pleasure. I've cornered you. You're going to be back. And uh, for those of you listening, you listen to this whole thing. This was a long episode and well worth it. And I appreciate you making it to the end. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads Oh, my friend, what a great episode. That was really a, a gift. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was it was like the the filming process for these is just as delightful as I had imagined it would be based on listening to the interviews. Like <laughs> this truly was just like what a, what, a, what a great chance to hang out. You know? <laughs> like, oh, I'm glad that's that's the feeling I go for. So I'm glad to hear it. All right. Last but not least, um, I've been running bumpers at the beginning of the episode. So yes. to do some. Does that interest you at all? Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. I'm just like, what should I, hmm, what should I, what should I make mine be? <laughs> yeah, keep, keep it simple. Don't overthink it. Uh, the mic is yours. Right. <clears throat> Best podcast voice on. This is Luke Jordan. When I'm not making games, you will find me listening to Tabletop Talk. Holy shit, that was awesome. Jason oh, this is Morning so cool. Jason Morningstar was yelling at me the other day. He was like, you need to do what Nordic Club did. You need to have a prize. You need to make everyone archive their games. And Because like a half of oh. them too is like all these GMs are writing down their games just enough that they can run them. And it's like, how do you diagram a game? Like, it, it's, right, well, like, it, I'm a professional game designer in an organized sense. Some of the games I've run at Fenno, I don't know how you would diagram them such that they're reproducible. It, and so like it's it's more yeah. more culture it's super interesting. Is like it, I was joking about having people, Shannon Applecline, but how do you teach people a culture of play? And like No, I, you don't. And, there's and, no and, good and, answer. And, yeah. and and just documenting the game doesn't do it, right? Um all right, I'm going to bring us back. I'm not going to bring up any of this <laughs> so we can talk about your games. But, but I want you to know I'm doing this reluctantly, yeah, <laughs> right? This is, because I, I could have made this an episode about this subject. <laughs> when, when, I say, when I say I write games about community, uh, you know, here's why, well, right? Like, and, 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 and of course, you know, part of the reason I do the origin story question, Luke, is to get an insight on you as a designer. And boy, it explains so much about the game that we're just about to talk about. Yeah. So Tying will be very history and community, right? Like, yep. Yep. So I'll bring I'm very predictable.
Oh, hey, are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.